Airline Pilot Guy episode 379. Hello, you're listening to the Airline Pilot Guy show, the view from our side of the cockpit door, with your host Captain Jeff broadcasting live from Studio 4G at the Hilton Garden Inn in Durham, North Carolina. Today's show is recorded on the 13th of June, 2019. episode, a helicopter pilot dies crash landing on top of a New York City skyscraper. An airline passenger opens an emergency exit thinking it was the lavatory door. More news, your feedback, and in today's Plane Tales, that's on D-Day Part 2. So get all settled in, tray tables and seat backs in the upright and locked positions. Electronic devices powered on. I'm Radio Roger. Flight 379 is ready for pushback. Thanks, Radio Roger. He's a real-life radio professional in the world's largest media market, New York City. We do appreciate him doing that for us. And you're listening to the Airline Pilot Guy Show. It's an aviation podcast where we cover aviation news and add our commentary to it. And we also answer your feedback. And here with me to help us all with that... From her lakeside studio in South Carolina, she's a doctor, skydiver, marathon runner, strength training junkie, IPA connoisseur, and commercial multi-engine instrument rated pilot. Her name is Dr. Steph. Hey, Captain Jeff. Very nice to see you this afternoon. Thank you. Very nice to see you as well. Looking forward to a great show. Absolutely. And from his studio in the English countryside, professional photographer, former RAF RAAF fighter pilot, former captain for an international airline based in London, it is Captain Nick. Hi there, Jeff, and uh, hi there, Steph. Yeah, it's uh, we're all floating away here, me and my brother, uh, and uh, your twin. Yeah, absolutely. And I just can't wait for the rain to start. But there you go. Not very good flying conditions, but fine for podcasting. Excellent. And Dana will hopefully be joining us later in the show. So we'll hold off on the sound effect for him. And uh, when he joins us, we'll play that most likely. Hello, everyone. How's everybody been doing? Nah. Mm. <laughs> just kidding. Work is great. Actually, huh? pretty good. Work is that, great. That good, Steph? Spectacular. <laughs> And, you know, it wasn't that long ago. You know, the last show, you know, the the space between the last show and the one before that was a big space. But this time mm-hmm. it was kind of a shortened period of time. So True. N- not a lot of time between the last episode and this one. And so probably not a lot, lot of stuff done. But, uh, Steph, how about yourself? Have you uh, been doing anything else bes- besides your lovely work? Mm, I can't. I'm trying to think what I actually did last weekend. You think I would remember this? Seeing well, so as we I was recorded on Friday. Yes. And so yeah. I actually did didn't do very much over the weekend. I was kind of oh. productive around the house. Mm-hmm. Um, it was pretty rainy last weekend, so it was definitely not good for outdoor flying sky activities. Um, mm-hmm. Actually, we've had a ton of rain. It rained a bunch again last night. Oh. Um, the lake level outside my house is very high, like almost touching the bottom of the uh, 
stationary dock. Oh. So it's, it's very high. Um, but there's all kinds of fun things to be done indoors. Um, so I did, I, uh, they just built a new indoor skydiving wind tunnel up uh, in Concord, North Carolina. So I went up there on Tuesday night for about an hour and a half. And uh, turns out I'm really terrible at uh, skydiving confined to a small tube enclosed structure. You need structure. a lot of room. Because <laughs> <laughs> when you're up there, you're going the place huh yeah well it's just not as uh it's good because it really uh, there's a lot to work on uh, yeah there's a lot to learn so it helps you with uh, your technique and stuff yeah absolutely so uh probably gonna uh i'm gonna take up a friend of mine on her offer for some more coaching and uh work on that some more it'll be fun sounds good I, i've seen those sort of competitions uh, people do yeah that. those people are really good if you yeah. want to see what the opposite of that is <laughs> you should watch me <laughs> in <wind> tunnel sometime <laughs> well you haven't seen me in there yet <laughs> yeah yeah, well, part of the problem, I mean, in there by my, in there by myself, it's fine. Yeah. Um, part of the problem is, is when I'm trying to, um, uh, do things with other people. So fly with other people in the wind tunnel. Um, I have bird bones, uh, they're hollow. I weigh nothing. And, um, so the speed of the wind that they usually need to create for most people is much greater than what I actually need. You're just like so up against even the with, top. <laughs> even with a weight belt, I have a very you, difficult time. So you're pinned to the ceiling. Where, pretty much. Where, where yeah. did she go? Where did she go? She's up there. <laughs> I was like, oh. I, there and play. It, it, doesn't say, it doesn't seem like it's something that would be very challenging um, <laughs> exercise-wise, like just uh, you know, physically. Mm -hmm. uh, but I was exhausted at the end of you know, like six minutes worth of tunnel time. It was, it was challenging. Wow. It's good training there. Good training and a lot of fun. And I'm looking forward to do some doing some more of that now that it's very close and convenient to uh, my place of work. So excellent. Yeah. Very nice. Okay. Well, Nick, how about yourself? Have you been busy with anything this uh, last few days? Yeah, uh, nothing uh, dramatic. I drove up to RAF Marham. Uh, Marham, when I was in the Air Force, was where all the um, tankers sat, you know, all the air-to-air refueling tankers. And uh, we used to have to go there for like a two-day uh, air-to-air refueling receivers course. And I was trying to explain to the uh, to the audience, because I was doing one of my uh, Royal Aeronautical Society lectures, so I was explaining to the audience uh, what the course involved. And I said, look, air-to-air refueling is really quite easy. The bloke trails a hose with a basket on. I stick a probe out. I stick the probe in the basket and fuel flows. When I'm full, I disengage and go away. How can you make that course last two days? <laughs> <laughs> anyway, um, yeah, we've all got to laugh about that. But uh, they're a very nice bunch of people. Marham is growing. Uh, it is to be the new uh, F-35 Lightning to um, operational conversion unit. And I'm sure they'll have... Uh, oh, 617 Squadron is also uh, forming there with F-35. 617, the famous Dam Buster Squadron. Oh. Uh, so, yep, they, uh, they're going to form there. So it's, it's a big growing base. And the guy that uh, hosted me and took me in the mess, a very nice bloke, Karim, uh, he's a coordinator engineer, going to be uh, one of the main engineers on the F-35 project. Uh, and uh, he, he showed me around the mess, which was nice. I haven't been in an officer's mess for many years and it's just as i recall it like a gentleman's club except of course they have ladies and gentlemen now but beautiful dining room lots of wonderful paintings everywhere silverware 
um, really, really rather grand. When I was in the service, I never even thought about it. But now visiting one from the outside, I'm going, wow, that's pretty, you know. I used to live in a place like this. So, yeah, very different. Very nice, lovely audience, and thoroughly enjoyed myself. Just a rather a long drive, so I'm a bit pooped. Today. Over here, when you say a gentleman's club, it has a different connotation. You should have a lot of... That's true. A lot of change. A, That's true. A club for gentlemen. Uh, yeah. They're not quite the same. A lot of one dollar bills, right. five dollar bills. You know, yes, they, yes. This has uh, this has waiters in white coats serving uh, discreetly well, some serving of them have, drinks on silver trays. Some of the higher end uh, establishments have things yeah. like that. Happening. But then again, and there are a lot uh, of people that don't have a lot of clothes on at all. Yeah, there true. you go. And a lot of large leather sofas and uh, <laughs> and TVs and Why'd things. I did that with sofas. I was thinking. <laughs> this, yeah. is, this has all gone the, the wrong direction completely we yeah, yeah no, let's, exactly let's try to get it back on track i'm sorry but a, but a very historic place and uh and lovely to see uh over it uh, the only problem was that it the weather here has been abysmal for the last few days and i drove up and back in pouring rain it's nearly 200 miles and it's uh you know it's not like 200 miles on an american road where it's pretty straight and there's not a lot of traffic it's really hard work sometimes mm. when you're going around some of our major roads in foul weather um you know so yeah it was hard work but nice to be on the show and I, at last i can relax with a beer yes and here, uh, yesterday and today, uh, the weather in the southeast, southeastern United States has been lovely. I mean, yesterday I was in Louisville and was walking the streets, and um, it was just so pleasant. In fact, when the wind was blowing, it was almost chilly, which is was, very uh, unusual. Went for a run last night. I mean, it was not great here because we had a ton of rain yesterday, but mm -hmm. um, when I went for my run last night at about 8.30, it was 60 degrees outside. Mm -hmm. that's, that's just unheard of. For yeah, it's southeastern United States in yeah. June. I just must have set you know a whole bunch of uh, low temperature records. Mm -hmm. I used to know some light, nice ladies who walk the streets. You could find some of them in gentlemen's clubs. I expect. <laughs> yeah, probably. Yeah. Mm. Rich mahogany. Why do I? Why do I sense a theme for the show already <laughs> developing? Well, hey, as soon as you have a great title, uh, we can start working on the artwork and oh yeah, knock all that stuff out. Oh, my God. Yeah, well, let's don't. Yeah, let's we'll stay away from the gentlemen's club. Never mind. Um, okay. Uh, anything else, uh, Nick? Before I uh, tell you about what I've been doing. Uh, no, go ahead, sir. Okay. A weekend um, did not fly, and actually, I had several days off, and there was a lot of um, a lot of overtime flying, green slip flying for my company, and um, I refrained from accepting any of them. I think there must have been ten to fifteen. I was offered, you know, like two day out and back kind of green slips, easy green slips. But uh, I thought, you know, I really don't feel like flying in this really, really crappy weather. And I've kind of obligated myself to sing in a couple of uh, music ensembles at my church. So um, I, I knew that I was needed for that. So I, I uh, said, no, I'm going to stay at home. I'm going to take a few days off and relax a little bit. So I went out uh, on a trip um, yesterday and I'm a three-day trip, day two right now. And uh, I was supposed to be in Little Rock on Wednesday, but we were rerouted or rerouted um, on Wednesday and ended up in Louisville, Kentucky. And uh, I, that was always a, actually it was a good reroute for us, I think. Got in a little bit earlier, a little bit shorter flight and uh, loved the hotel 
in downtown Louisville. It's an embassy suites and it's in an old historic building. It's just really nice. Um, but over the weekend, another reason why I didn't accept any of these, um, proffered trips for overtime flying was that a few, about a week ago or so, uh, somebody called me up and said that they were going to be at the Atlanta international airport, uh, on their way from somewhere back home to Europe. And if I were around, uh, the airport that this person would love to meet up with me. And I said, well, I'm, I'm off, but I'll drive down or take the train down and meet with you. And so that's what I did. And I have some audio. Well, ladies and gentlemen, a few days ago, I received a text from Marcus Volter, the uh, host of the very professional and uh, amazing engineering and science podcast. Is that what you uh, characterize it as, engineering and science? A lot of good aviation stuff there. Uh, Marcus is a uh, licensed glider pilot, and I just learned today that he is a uh, licensed aerobatic glide glider pilot. I, I had no idea that there was such a thing. Anyway, so he said, hey, I'm going to be in the uh, Atlanta airport on Sunday if you're going to be around. And I said, well, I'm home, and uh, yeah, I'll definitely head down there and we'll, we can meet up. And uh, I'm going to let Marcus tell you exactly why he flew through Atlanta and then up to Fort Wayne, of all places, Fort Wayne, Indiana, Indiana. and then uh, now he's coming back and uh, heading back to Germany after this. So, uh, Marcus, say hello to everybody. Hello. <laughs> okay, you need to say more than that. More, more. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I was at the Fort Wayne Air Show. Um, um, saw B-52s and KC-135s. And the Thunderbirds were also there. And uh, that was the occasion why I had been there as well. Okay, so you... Um so a lot of people would be thinking, okay, well, it's kind of cool to come to the United States, uh, Fort Wayne, to uh, see an air show. Okay, the Thunderbirds. Yeah, you've never seen them before. Okay. Well, it's, it's uh, so what kind of experience did you have with the uh, seeing the Thunderbirds? A, a relatively close one, right? So uh, I did see, so when I was looking at their flight line, I, I would see uh, five F-16s instead of six. Okay, so... Uh, where was the sixth one? Yeah, that was below me or around me or whatever. Okay, so I, I'm not understanding. Help us out here. Well, I, I got extremely lucky and I got a ride in an F-16D uh, with the Thunderbirds. And so um, that kind of developed over the last few months. And so obviously I had to fly over to the U.S. to be able to access the airplane. And so that's why I was here. Fantastic. Now, uh, Marcus shared with me that... <laughs> and I'm still finding it this hard to believe, but he said that the reason why he started doing a podcast was so that he could have the opportunity someday to apply to fly and get a ride with the Air Force Thunderbirds. I have the uh, burger, yeah. And so, wow. I mean, and, and you finally kind of attained your, your master plan, your goal, and you, you attained it, and it must be a great feeling. Yeah, so I had literally been in love with the F-16s since I was, since I was 12. And um, about 10, 11 years ago, Steve Tupper, Airspeed Online podcast, he got a flight with the Thunderbirds. And I thought, well, that's cool. If a podcaster can, you know, is, quote, important enough for them to take them, I'll just start a podcast as well. And that was a very specific goal. And so it's a really big deal both for the podcast and for me personally that this worked out. So it's really really cool 
So that's interesting. Um, you know, people ask me how, why I got into podcasting. And as I've shared many times, it was because I wanted to play with this, these toys, this, uh, all this technology and gadgets and stuff like that. That was really my, my motivation. Obviously, yours was a much better motivation to actually get a ride with the Thunderbirds. It, oh, my God, how is not my first podcast, right? I did something about software engineering with a couple of friends before. So that was like three years earlier. And so I, I was over the audio aspect with that podcast. And then I switched over to... Uh, oh my God, how? Because I got bored with the software stuff and science and engineering, I thought, is, is broader, more interesting. But what actually triggered the decision to start was Steve Tupper's uh, Thunderbolts ride. Wow. Are you, gonna, are you going to contact Steve and, and tell him thank you for the motivation? I did that. Actually, I contacted him in, in, in advance to ask him any tips, anything I should know. And uh, the, the only thing he said was, well, stick very specifically what they ask of you. Because the reason why he was able to fly was that the guy who was originally scheduled, he didn't bring his uh, filming person, the, the, you know, the guy who records everything. And so his flight was canceled. And so that's when Steve got the opportunity. That's what he said. So he said, be very stick exactly to what they ask of you. Right, because you may never have this opportunity again. I guess you can scratch the may. You replace with a will. Yes. Okay. Very good. With with certainty, you will never have that opportunity again. So, uh, how long how long was the uh, was the flight? An hour and a few minutes. That's awesome. That's a typical sortie. That's you know the fuel load and everything else. So yeah, we, we took off um, a few a few minutes straight to a MOA military operations area, and there we did a bunch of aerobatics, pulled the obligatory nine Gs. I got to fly a little bit myself. That was as very cool, of course. And then we flew back, and that's when we did the formation flying with the other F-16, and then landed after about an hour. Wow, that is, that, I mean, it's just thrilling hearing you talk about it. I'm just so happy that you attained your goal, and I, I told uh, Marcus, I said, this must be a, a huge letdown for you now. I mean, are you going to stop podcasting? <laughs> he said, no, he assured me he's not going to stop. He's just going to have to come up with, with some new goal, I guess. Yeah, but that will be tough. I mean... It, not just because ob objectively it's tough, but also because I've I've kind of made this my goal, right? This has been this huge looming goal. Now I've reached it. And now the really question is really a little bit what what comes next. Well, I'm sure it's going to be great, and um, I can't wait to hear what it is. And uh, folks, you need to uh, definitely subscribe to the Omega Tau podcast because it's it's an awesome podcast. Uh, even Captain Nick has been featured on the show. I think that's how he got into this whole podcasting thing, right? I, I met him somehow on Facebook, and then he kind of, after doing the interview with me, he kind of get into, got into your sphere of influence, and then you sucked him up. Well, so that uh, so we now have somebody to blame for all of this. It's your fault. Thanks a lot, Marcus. All right. Well, thank you very much for sharing the story with the APG audience, uh, and it was so nice to be able to meet you. And uh, thanks for uh, sacrificing your Sunday afternoon and coming out. It was not, it was, it was nothing. It was nothing. So, all right, back to you, Jeff, in the studio. What I was trying to say there, it was not a sacrifice at all. It was a pleasure. <laughs> Instead of, it was nothing. It was nothing. It was nothing. <laughs> I was just, nothing like that came through my earphones. <laughs> well, that's what I meant. <laughs> you gotta read between the lines when I say silly things. So, fair enough. It was great seeing him and uh, great uh, hearing his his experience with uh, flying with the Thunderbirds in the uh, F-16. 
And uh, I thought it was really uh, interesting how he, that was really the reason why he started doing his science and engineering podcast so that he could yeah. get I had no idea that that was the like specific no. goal. Yeah. I mean, I do, obviously he loves flying related stuff. A lot of their shows are flying mm-hmm. related. Yeah. He says um, he gets all kinds of negative feedback because he's always talking about flying stuff. Yeah. The, the whole science and engineering side of things. Yeah. Aren't as interested. Yeah. Well, they should be. They should be. Yeah. What's wrong with you, those people? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I can't wait to hear more about string theory. Mm. <laughs> yeah, me too. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes you know, I listen to the episodes in German, but I don't really understand. <laughs> German. Well, the English ones are, might just as well be in German. <laughs> some of them anyway, because I'm going, really? You know, I was, I was telling him about, he, he had no idea um, how this whole thing with Nick came about. And I said, you understand that I did not realize that the Nick Anderson that you had on one of your podcasts was the same Nick Anderson that was sending me audio feedback and the same Nick Anderson whom we invited to be a guest or I mean a a host, a permanent host on our show until after I asked you that. And then it was like one, I don't know if you remember what episode it was. It was like a big light bulb went off in my head. I went, wait, you're that, you're that same guy that same was guy? on Marcus's <laughs> podcast. No, 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 there's three of us. <laughs> <laughs> well, I didn't think I didn't, the names, you know, I'm terrible with names. So anyway, yeah, that's true. That's true. <laughs> uh, but that's very true. nice. Yeah, it was indeed my uh, my first uh, foray into podcasting on Marcus's uh, show. And he's a great interviewer. There's no doubt yes, about is. it. Mm-hmm. It was, uh, it was good fun. I great guy. It. We had a great time at uh, TGI Fridays. I was showing him some great um, American culture Ooh, <laughs> yeah. and great yeah. food. I, and I got one of those down the road in Guilford. <laughs> really? Well, come to the, come to the yeah. Charlotte area sometime. We'll hey, now I tried to take him real... to One Flew South, um, a, a very nice, probably the, the nicest upscale rec, uh, ref, restaurant in the Atlanta airport. And mm-hmm. uh, But he said, well, he didn't like sushi. I said, well, I think I have... They have other things besides sushi. I was thinking I was going to I was going to treat him, and uh, he steered us over to TGI TGI Fridays because he was intending to pick up the tab. So then, then we found out after the fact that that's the reason why he didn't want to go and eat at that really fancy, uh, expensive <laughs> restaurant. I said, "Well, I was going to pay for it." He goes, "Well, I didn't know that." <laughs> <laughs> he was just trying to keep it reasonable. He was, yeah. Although I Marcus, anything in the airport is like yeah. jacked up, like. Yeah, it's okay, and it's really not the coffee fund great. can can yeah, manage your. That's, that's what your I was going to do. Yeah, yeah. Okay, well, anyway, great time with uh, Marcus. So uh, let's see what else occurred during that time between the last show and this. Well, I didn't write it down in the show notes, so I probably won't remember any of it. So uh that's about it uh oshkosh updates i don't think we have any updates getting uh very close to uh releasing the um the order form for the t-shirts for those of you who are going to be attending oshkosh and the osh blast that we're uh hosting and um the shirts on teespring will be released and we'll put that on the website very very soon as soon as i have all the details uh worked out with the bulk order And, uh, again, just a reminder for you to see when we're in your neck of the woods or any meetups planned, please look at the ABG community calendar, which can be found by going to airlinepilotguy.com slash calendar. 
or you can become a slacker, an APG slacker, and uh, Hillel will tell us about that at the end of the show. And yes. Mm, do you want to mention anything about this coming weekend? This coming there weekend. Activities that are, we are not directly associated with. Oh, yeah, yeah. With, however. Yeah, it's a go ahead stuff. So if you um, either are or can be in the Washington, D.C. area, specifically Chantilly, where is the. That's right. Okay. Ooh, remembered. Um, the uh, Smithsonian, Smithsonian um, Udvar-Hazy Center mm -hmm. um, at Dulles uh, is having their innovations in flight. I think they're still calling that, calling it that. Mike is going to I think so. Innovations in flight is what they're calling okay. it. Yeah. Um, and I don't have any information on the time, but I believe it's on Saturday. It is Saturday. <laughs> Someone help me out. I'm really <laughs> sketchy with my details here. <laughs> it's it's on Saturday. Clearly, I'm not attending. However, it's on Saturday. Um. You can uh, certainly go to the Smithsonian's website, the Udvar-Hazy Center website, and check out all the information there. I'm sure there's plenty of details in our Slack um, page as well, um, as well as on social media sites, Twitter and Facebook regarding uh, that get-together. But it's a big um, event for the um, uh, Airplane Geeks podcast and their communities. And I know main man Micah will be there amongst many others, I'm sure and several members of the APG community as well. So if you find yourself either in the area or available to go, um, check it out. And we have at, been before and it's excellent. And the at the end of the whole thing, uh, there's usually a big meetup of folks yeah. over at... Red Robin? Red Robin, that's it. Red Robin, which is uh, uh, very close to the Udvarhazy Center in Chantilly. So there you yes. go. And, uh, so if you're, if you're in the area or not, um, as Steph mentioned, they make these things called airplanes that, you know, will deliver you to Dulles airport, that's true. which is, and where, then some people are actually flying their own airplanes like Hillel, is, like uh, oh, yeah. Mike Carroll's, um, and others. Those are the only two that I can think of right off the top of my head. And, uh, so a lot of great aviation geeks and people from the aviation podcasting community are going to be present. So you should including, of course, the, uh, the the great airplane geeks. So, there you go. Um, anything else we should talk about before we talk about the coffee fund? Hmm. Not in my neck of the woods. No. Nope. All right. Let's move it on. Johnny, how much more coffee? No thanks. I love coffee. I love tea. The APG community. Coffee and tea and the Java and me. A cup, a cup, a cup, a cup, a cup. So, what is this whole coffee fund thing? Well, it's your way to support the show financially if you have the resources to do so. As we like to say, if you need your money for rent, for you know, the roof over your head, clothing, food, flying lessons, that sort of thing, please don't send us anything. This is a free show, and we do it out of love for flying and aviation. But if you have some extra coin and shekels or whatever in your pocket and you want to support us, that'd be great. And you can do that by becoming a Coffee Fund Club member, Coffee Fund Cadre member. A couple different ways to do it. Uh, Classic Fund and you can become a patron of the show via Patreon. 
since the last episode, we have some people that use the Classic Fund method, and they are Alfredo Perez, George Leslie, Viz, uh, Vicente Garcia Ruiz, uh, Mark Van Ram, and Ivan Finnegan. So thank you all for contributing via the PayPal Coffee Fund Classic method. If you'd like to learn more, head over to AirlinePilotGuy.com slash coffee. You'll be glad you did. Stand by for news. All right, let's start off with the first item in our news folder. And this was something that happened in New York City, literally the block right next to, or the building right next to the hotel that we stay in, or I stay in, uh, for layovers in uh, Manhattan at the uh, Sheraton Times Square Hotel, I believe. Anyway, it was the building right next door. Uh, There was a, uh, well, let me read this. This is from the BBC.com. And the, no, that's from the second article. I don't know what the first one is. Anyway, the pilot of a helicopter has died after it crashed, crash landed on top of a skyscraper in Manhattan. The helicopter burst into flames on hitting the AXA Equitable Center, but there were no other casualties. The pilot has been identified as Tim McCormick, a veteran aviator. An investigation is underway. Eyewitnesses said the building shook with the impact and they were reminded of the plane attacks on the city in September 2001. You may have heard of that. That was uh, what we call 9-11 uh, or 9-1-1. Yeah, 9-11. Um, it occurred on a rainy and foggy Monday afternoon at 787 7th Avenue, just north of Times Square. It was a twin-engine Augusta A109E carrying only the pilot. Uh, it had taken off from a heliport on Manhattan's east side at 1.32 local time. It was reportedly heading to Linden Airport in New Jersey. And 11 minutes later, it plunged into the top of the 54-story office building in what was described as a forced or emergency landing. Um, So uh, there was another piece of information as they started to do some investigation. And... uh, Let's see, this is the one from, um, no, I guess the first one was BBC News. This one is from NBC News. Um, Timothy McCormick did not have the required certificate that would have allowed him to legally fly in poor visibility conditions and rely on instruments. We call it an instrument rating. Uh, Timothy McCormick did not have the, okay, I just read that. Um, He did not have the required certificate that would have allowed him to fly uh, legally, when the visibility was less than three miles, and where he could use the instruments on his chopper to guide him through the gloom and rain that enveloped Manhattan on Monday, an FAA spokeswoman said. Uh, this revelation came as National Transportation Safety Board investigators were trying to pinpoint what caused the deadly helicopter crash in Midtown Manhattan. So, um, I'm sure that many of you have seen some of the video from. Uh, this incident, or just prior to him crashing in the top of the, into the top of this building, uh, there was uh, some cell phone video of the helicopter literally diving almost straight down, and then 
recovering from that dive before hitting the water or whatever he was flying over. And so this all makes sense now. When I first saw that, I'm thinking, was a guy on drugs or was he drunk or was he just, you know, fooling around? What's going on here? But uh, now it makes perfect sense to me when you're in a situation where you're in a whiteout condition or you end up uh, inadvertently flying into instrument meteorological conditions. If you're not an instrument rated pilot, it's very, very easy to get disoriented pretty quickly. And so now what looks like happened in this video is that he got disoriented and then somehow exited the bottom of this cloud layer and then was in clear air and could see the ground or the water or whatever it was he was above. And so he realized his situation pulled out of the, uh, the dive. And unfortunately he, I guess, found himself again in these instrument conditions. If it were me and I was not instrument rated, I would have stayed below the clouds and as low to the ground as possible to keep that from happening again. But apparently he didn't. And he ended up getting disoriented again and crashed on top of this building, apparently. Which is sad. Yeah, Very absolutely. Sad. And I mean, there's all kinds of different ways your body can trick you when you don't have visual input uh, to your eyes to, uh, you know, it seems like it would almost be easy to know if you were remaining upright or if you're turning to one side or another, if you've never had that experience of um, being disoriented where you don't have visual input or good visual input where everything is kind of just blank around you. Um, and during instrument training, you're really taught to rely on those instruments because your body's very good at tricking you into thinking that, oh, hey, I'm I'm starting to turn here. I need to turn back the other direction. Um, and then you can end up turning and basically spinning yourself all the way down and losing altitude. Um, same thing with pitching up, pitching down. Um, yeah, it's, it's a shame that he found himself in those conditions and was not able to um, stay out of them for long enough not to get disoriented again. I, I'm sure that uh, those of us who have instrument ratings remember the first time that you were flying with somebody that did have and you did not and how you could you were just swearing that we have to be upside down. I mean, this, you know, I, I remember flying with the, uh, the first air force instructor pilot when I was brand new and basically my first flight in a, in a jet. And I was just thinking that this guy that I'm sitting next to is a God that <laughs> he, I can't believe that he's able to fly this airplane without crashing it because I swore I was at least in a 90 degree, 120 degree bank. And of course we were straight and level. That's what the instrument said. And you know, a real, real instrument flying, uh, for those of you out there who are, um, you know, private pilots without in- instrument ratings, and you've done some, maybe some flying under the hood, uh, some kind of a device to restrict your, your visibility of outside, and you're just relying completely on your instrument panel or your instruments. Um, it's not quite the same thing. Wouldn't you say, Steph? That uh, Absolutely. Because, so imagine if you're in, you know, so certainly this day that the video that I've seen from it is pretty, it was a pretty murky day. So not even a lot of ambient light, even though it was daytime hours. Um, so when you're just under the hood or you have something restricting your vision so that you can only see, you know, your instrument panel, um, you're still getting light coming in from that direction and your body, you can still sense that which direction the light is coming from. So that gives you some sort of spatial awareness, um, that you really don't have if the, if it's low light conditions. Yes. And Liz uh, was asking in the chat room, is this the same kind of thing that happened with uh, JFK Jr.? 
And not exactly the same because he was never in the clouds, but it was one of those days where there was not a distinct horizon. So technically it was visual meteorological condition. So he wasn't doing anything illegal, but because there wasn't that reference to a horizon in the distance, he completely lost perception of which way was up and which way was down. And, mm -hmm. and then he got disoriented and crashed. Yeah, especially over the water. That, that's easy to, yeah. to happen to. So he was described as an experienced, a, um, you know, very capable, um, um, you know, the guy had been doing a lot of flying. I'm just a bit surprised that he wasn't instrument rated. I mean, surely, you know, he was, uh, had been around long enough to have got a rating if he, uh, if he wanted one. Yeah. Well, apparently the kind of flying that he was doing for that company, uh, he was a, he was a commercially rated pilot, but he didn't have the instrument rating, and apparently he didn't have to have it as long as he flew in. Yeah, if you're doing VMC. if you're doing daytime, you know. Yeah, yeah I, I was surprised weather too. Weather sightseeing tours. Yeah, and he was an instructor as well, from what I yeah. recall reading. So, I, yeah, um, I agree with you, uh, Nick. It's a little strange that you would go on to get all of those ratings and have that type of a job and not have an instrument rating as well. Um, but. You know, you know he was know following what his York. company required and, you know, yep. wasn't yeah, typically flying in those the, conditions. The weather around New York can be a bit dodgy for sure. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So another classic case of somebody that didn't have the qualifications to be flying in those conditions ended up finding themselves there. And sometimes it's a happy ending and sometimes not. Robert in the chat room says that instrument ratings are much less common in helicopters. Yeah, I think that would make sense. Yeah. Yeah, yeah the, I, I think there are a lot of helicopters that don't, don't even have the capability of flying in instrument conditions, right? Uh, he also mentions that the helicopter must have autopilot to be uh, instrument approved, rated. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm not sure. See, that was a pretty nice helicopter. It, it, that may have had mm -hmm. that capability, but I don't know. I don't so. know. Yeah. Anyway, so an interesting story. The, the good news, the bad news, of course, was that the pilot lost his life. The good news is that nobody else did. So, yeah. Um, next story. Uh, a passenger mistakes an exit door for the toilet on a PIA, Pakistani International Airlines flight. This is from the Express Tribune. Um, authorities say that's 37 passengers offloaded, flight delayed for seven hours. Only 37 passengers. Uh, flight delayed for seven hours. A woman aboard a Pakistan International Airlines flight sparked panic on Saturday after she mistakenly opened the emergency exit, thinking it was the toilet. The national flag carrier's plane was on the runway at the Manchester airport when she pressed the button, opening the emergency exit door. Uh, oops. Consequently, the aircraft's airbag chute, in other words, the uh, door slide, uh, opened and 37 passengers had to be offloaded from the aircraft. Uh, let's see. The, when the woman was asked why she had opened the emergency door, she said that she thought it was the toilet. Uh, authorities say that the plane's airbag chute had opened by mistake. Oh, I just read that. Um, again, they're putting these extra sentences over and over and over again. <laughs> I what kind of an airplane has a, a button to open the door i've got um uh <laughs> well i don't know if that looks like a that kind of looks like a uh an airbus to me but i don't know if that's an airbus or a boeing 
Well, neither do I. Sure. I was trying to look to see the markings around the uh, stable later. Actually, stable I can lighter. probably look it up here real quick and see. Oh, A P B H W. Oh, it's got. It looks like it's got a little um, tail uh, bumper. Airbuses don't tend to have those. A tail bumper. It's a yeah. You know, just stop you scraping the tail. Down the this road. is it's oh. a triple seven. Okay, triple seven. There were thirty-seven passengers on this triple seven. Wow, oh, that's wow. that's a very light flight. That certainly uh, yeah. is. Uh, uh, yeah, so I, I I think they've got a great big damn lever, um, not a uh, a button. But so I'm beginning to wonder <laughs> what I don't, kind of a toilet she thought she was. Yeah, I don't think <laughs> I don't think it was just a button either. That that seems I, a little simplified. I, I think there's more to the story, and yeah. I, I think that's what you mean. The journalist could have gotten excuse. this wrong. No, well, oh, so there's that <sighs> possibility, or. Yeah. You know, people do strange things for all kinds of strange reasons, yeah. and then give all kinds of strange answers oh, for I why see. they did such strange. Oh, I things. thought it was the the door. Oh, to I just the, thought that uh, was the toilet. Yeah, yeah, come on, no, you didn't. You okay. were doing something else. Good point. Crazy. Good point. Yeah. Sorry, journalists. <laughs> so, oh, you can be the journalist. Too. Did she? Did Not she? Ha- them. <laughs> did she slide down the slide and have a pee or what? I mean, <laughs> it scared the pee out of her before she was able to get on the slide. <laughs> probably. Probably. Yeah. Oh man. Um, well, so much more we could say about that, but why waste the time? <laughs> exactly. Uh, here's a feel good story. Item C, uh, when a group of 41 fifth graders and their chaperones on their way to a school trip had their flights canceled at Oklahoma city's Will Rogers world airport, Delta airlines gate agents stepped in to save the day. The students were traveling from Tulsa to Richmond, Virginia for a school trip to Washington, DC that had been in the works for almost a year when they were notified by Fort Worth-based American Airlines that their flight was canceled and there were no alternative flights available, according to ABC affiliate KOCO News. I wonder if they pronounce that Coco. I would. Uh, Again, this is from the uh, DallasNews.com. Last week, after being stranded for six and a half hours, the students were finally able to visit the nation's capital. American offered the group a refund, and chaperones for the students were disappointed They were unable to make other travel arrangements through the airline. That's when two Delta Airlines gate agents who witnessed the event went to work. The employees contacted Delta's headquarters in Atlanta and uh, managed to fly one of the airline's spare aircraft to Oklahoma City just to take the more than three dozen students to Richmond. Uh, This is a quote from Kara Horn, one of the agents in Oklahoma City who helped the group. We were so thrilled to have been able to make such a difference in the days of each and every one of these kids. It was absolutely amazing. This is from one of the chaperones. It was absolutely amazing when Delta corporate came in and just said, we'll just give you the whole plane. But they didn't actually give them the whole plane. They, they, but they I were, mean, the that's amazing. On the generosity, yeah, that was, really. that would be very generous. <laughs> Here's your airplane. <laughs> Take good care of it. Yes. Treat it well. Yeah, And you'll have to put the, your own fuel in it to uh, make the flight. No, so uh, obviously uh, Delta found an opportunity for some great uh, positive PR. And uh, they had an airplane, you know, which was not a cheap thing to do. Um, And they uh, ended up uh, picking up those kids, got them to their destination. And I'm sure that uh, that did not make American Airlines very happy. Probably Uh, not. Yeah. uh, It's a little bit of, ooh, why couldn't we do that? Well, sometimes, you know. They may have it's not had an extra the right, Having the right resources in the right place at the right time. and Right. I'm just curious, Jeff, would uh, Acme Airlines have uh, done the same? Nah, probably not. 
Yeah. <laughs> We're not as generous. We don't have those resources, Nick. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it's really just the coffee fund keeping it we, going. We really only have, well, we don't have any airplanes, actually. Yeah. <laughs> but um, if we had some virtual uh, spare airplanes, we would have done it. Yes, mm-hmm. we would have. <laughs> and we would have virtually flown them. Yes. And it's almost would, as good as the real thing. Yes. And yeah. everybody would have it, been virtually we, happy. Or, 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 or no, in uh, Oklahoma. Where were they? they were uh, Tulsa. City. Tulsa. Yeah. Wow. I'm not getting the right wait, city there was at a, all. No, wait. Well, maybe you're right. Maybe No, you're right. No, it was no, Oklahoma no. City. Um, you're correct. Whatever. Yeah. They were somewhere. They were somewhere in, in Oklahoma. Oklahoma. <laughs> yes. One of those Does Wiley Coyote fly Acme? Um, no, but the roadrunner does. It was Oklahoma City because I remember reading the Will Rogers yes. Airport. So, yes. yeah, that's it. Good point. Um, oh, that was Tim that said that. Huh? By the way, uh, where is Will Rogers World? I, I want to go visit it. It's uh, in nearby Oklahoma City. Uh, and what is a Will Rogers World? Well, there's Will Rogers, and this was his world. Yeah, and now it's an airport. (laughs) They made his world into an airport. Yes. (laughs) Oh dear. It was a small world. Okay. Yeah. All right. Moving on. This is an interesting occurrence that just happened a a couple of days ago. Um, Collins Aerospace is coordinating with safety regulators and its equipment clients after a GPS connection outage on its parts resulted in the cancellation of hundreds of flights especially flights on aircraft operated by U.S. regional carriers. The U.S. Federal Aviation Administration had few details to share about the groundings on 8 and 9 June, primarily caused by the Collins Aerospace GPS-4000S sensor that connects aircraft with GPS satellites. Effective carriers do not expect more delays or cancellations related to the problem as they await um, for answers from Collins and the FAA. A Collins spokeswoman says the company identified a technical issue with more, with one or more of its GPS products impacting availability to connect to the network. On 10 June, the company says it determined the root cause and the resolution. This is flight from flightglobal.com. Uh, we are engaging with our customers to ensure continued safe operational capability, she adds. The FAA on... 10 June says carriers in both Europe and North America reported the GPS problem to the agency, but carriers did not divert flights due to the anomaly. It published an air traffic advisory on 9 June ordering aircraft receiving GPS connectivity failure to coordinate with the FAA before departing. We're working to to determine the, we are working to determine the cause of the problem, which may have resulted from a software update to the aircraft navigation systems. The FAA says in a statement, the FAA tracks flights on radar in addition to using satellite technology, so airborne aircraft are under continuous surveillance by air traffic control. Bombardier says it's coordinating with Collins after a large portion of its CRJ series aircraft was affected by the GPS connectivity failure on its regional aircraft carrying Collins navigation parts. We are assessing the situation and our focus is ensuring impact on our customers is as limited as possible. Uh, they say. Um, so um, apparently, uh, I believe it was uh, Dispatcher Mike was saying something that uh, they think that there was something about the, some kind of a table, some kind of an almanac or something that the GPS use, the GPS uh, system uses and that it was out of date 
and they were they needed to upload a new version of the almanac, uh, but they were not planning on do that doing that until like Saturday. <laughs> so sorry if you have these systems that rely on this accurate information from this satellite array, uh, which I thought was interesting. Uh, it was either the U.S. Coast Guard or the U.S. Air Force that was responsible for maintaining the almanac, uh, whatever that is, uh, in relation to uh, GPS satellite arrays. Um, well, apparently the GPS updates at this time of the year, and it moves a leap second. Mm-hmm. Um, to keep uh, in time with the fact that the Earth's rate of rotation changes. Uh, so every two and a half years, they have to whip a second away from us. Um, and uh, they, the new Almanac was supposed to be in place, and it wasn't. So Ooh. it's amazing how one second of error can make such a difference. And, and it's, a, it's amazing that it only affected that, own, that particular company's version of the GPS receivers in uh, because I think most of Acme mainline uh, was not affected at all. It was only mostly these uh, Bombardier CRJs that were uh, mostly affected. Yeah. Do, do these airplanes have VORs and DMEs? They do. They do. <laughs> so, I mean, I, I don't know. Are, are there airports in the States nowadays that are doing away with conventional uh, SIDS and STARS and relying entirely on GPS approaches? I, I don't know. But, I uh, don't think so. Um, although I have found myself in sit- a couple of situations where the uh, the runways that we needed to use because of like extreme wind situations uh, were only using uh, RNAV approaches, GPS approaches, and the, the, the equipment that I was flying at the time didn't have that capability. And uh, so, you know, I can see that there are some limited circumstances where that could affect your capabilities. Uh, But uh, yeah, it may have been one of those things that nobody really knew what to do at the point where this occurred. And finally, maybe somebody said, "Uh, you know, uh, we can fly these things the old fashioned way with VORs and courses and that kind of thing. We were all supposed to know how to do that right now. Yes. Yeah. That was kind of what I was getting at. Although, yeah, I might be wrong on some of this because I've been kind of just in this um, black hole of my own work recently, but I thought there was something else going on with those particular, especially the, the CRJs um, where even though they do have the capability to fly those approaches, it still runs through the same system somehow in the airplane. So everything was kind of affected. Um, or they were very limited in what they could actually use for various types of approaches. I'm intentionally being a little vague there because I think that was something that I may or may not have read somewhere on the internet, which is always correct. I think, but yeah, that's always right. If it's on the internet, it's got to be true. <laughs> so if someone, if someone is, uh, was flying one of those affected aircraft and you would like to leave us some feedback about what you were and were not able to do while do that was occurring. Do know anybody like that stuff that might be flying that kind of airplane? I can think of Stephen Ivy. Oh yeah, there you go. (laughs) I have a feeling he was affected, and I think he was supposed to go fly tomorrow on a trip, and he said it's going to be very pleasant. (laughs) And uh, he's very good at sending feedback in when he gets a spare moment. Yeah, I'm sure he'll tell us find out more about it. Um, I think you might be right, Steph. That uh, that somehow in, in my airplane the. RNAV GPS related stuff is kind of separate from right. the it's VR and everything else. So same, it's not a big deal. Same software system or right. yeah, display system or whatever. Right, right. Yeah. 
Um, so, like I said, I, I, I'm not up on all the specifics of that because I certainly don't have experience with those particular aircraft or uh, units, but yeah, someone will, will inform us. Yes, somebody, I'm sure several will. So that was an interesting little occurrence that happened just a couple of days ago. But it just shows you, rather than in the old days when you used to get a, a navigation system outage, uh, it would affect one airport or one area. Now GPS can uh, ground uh, you know, a, a great number of aircraft all at once. Uh, it's just amazing the impact it had all over the States and in Europe. Uh, and you go, well, actually, we're all so dependent, becoming so dependent on these systems that yep. if they fall over, then, you know, the whole thing seems to be grinding. All the dominoes go down. That's when, yep. you know, when the, when the FAA announces all these shutdowns of all these ground-based navigational aids, and I know they're expensive to maintain, but I'm thinking, yeah, but those satellites that are orbiting the Earth or in geostationary orbit or whatever something like this a little hiccup occurs then it just shuts down everything uh now yep. there are multiple you know the the gps satellite array is one of the what one of four um uh, global yeah, there's, positioning there's satellite systems one there's uh GNSS. there's uh the american military that's the three i know of there's okay. probably another one yeah i saw a graphic and i think there was like three or four of these things listed so it's not like you know, that if one goes down, that they're all going to go down. Uh, but still, I think that's putting well, all still, of our eggs in one basket, which is not yeah, a good idea. And that's exactly right. Especially for this modern world that relies so much upon, you know, uh, aviation to get people around the world. So, and not only aviation, you know. Man, the, let's just go back to dead reckoning. Yeah. You know, what's really sad fine. is that how many people... <laughs> don't know how to read a map have no idea No, that's terrifying actually <laughs> yeah i mean it would it would really just the whole world would come to a to a screeching halt i think yeah. if we didn't have our gps systems yeah. uh people go go figure out how to read a map and uh mm -hmm. just have a and backup then get back to us yeah. yeah pay attention to where you're going and the street names and stuff yeah and when you've Hashtag. done that learn how to do a star shot so you can fix yourself on the map well, that I can't do, so maybe I need to <laughs> yeah, do yeah, some studying. Okay. I'm, I'm not quite that old. Um, sorry. <laughs> Hasht hashtag save the NDBs. No. Yeah, the NDBs, you know, we used to fly the 727s from uh, Miami, Fort Lauderdale, uh, Palm Beach to New York, Boston, and all the places up out over the water, you know, the, the Atlantic Ocean there where it kind of curves in on the uh, Atlantic coastline. And just using NDBs, it was kind of a joke. I, I couldn't really fun. believe. I couldn't really believe we were doing it. <laughs> that was. And so, luckily, there was radar coverage. So there we go. Uh, yeah. So when you uh, wandered way off. So yeah, and Acme, like, Where uh, are you going? Acme, what's like, your heading? Following uh, that needle. <laughs> yeah. Because well, we're showing you a little bit off course there. Uh, fly this heading for a while. <laughs> okay. <laughs> hashtag. <laughs> the NDBs. Just, hashtag. The NDB was just like a little a little arrow that pointing yeah. like to the top or bottom of the case, and you were just like making these adjustments to mm -hmm. keep it in the general area it was supposed to be. Uh, much different than today's very, a little less very, precise. Yeah, well, a lot yeah, I, I remember doing NDB uh, um, approaches, non-precision approaches, and you're supposed to keep uh, within five degrees, uh, you know, of an, an 
approach angle. And of course, the needle's just drifting around and it's going like plus or minus 10 degrees. I say, how do you keep within five degrees when the needle is just drifting around like that? Push the head, drag the tail, right? Yeah. But I mean, you'd be straight and level and the needle would just be swinging around. Oh, yeah. Like when, especially it, you when you got close to it. Yeah, yeah. Like it was being blown by the wind. I don't yeah. know. Oh, those were the days, huh? Yeah. <laughs> All right. Uh, moving on to our last item in the news folder, which is now we've talked about this company, uh, Paul Allen, one of the co-founders of Microsoft. Um, he came up with this great idea. He was a, 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 a aviation enthusiast and a dreamer uh, for something called Strato Launch. And it was going to be a uh, sound like I'm Italian is it going to be a, a system where they would use an airplane to launch rockets. So uh, I guess that uh, people were saying that's a more efficient way to launch a rocket because it doesn't have to use all that energy and propulsion to get the thing going off the ground. You're already way up in the air and then you launch the thing and uh, whatever. Um, so they came up with this airplane design and we've talked about it before. And it honestly, to me, looks like some kind of prehistoric creature with uh, six jet engines and Basically, uh, the uh, cockpit areas of, I think, two, is it two 747 cockpits they used or something to come up with this? I don't know. It's a very strange looking airplane, actually. Uh, two separate fuselages joined together by a center wing section and then the left and right wings. And the left and right wings have three engines apiece. And it looks like it has, I don't know, how many? Four, four eight, uh, 12... Help me, uh, 24, 24 main gear tires. 12 on each side. Yeah, and uh, looks like about uh, four or eight nose wheel tires. Anyway, it's a, a very strange looking contraption. It made its first, we talked about it on the show uh, just a couple of months ago. Uh, it made its maiden flight. And uh, there are some video out there of it uh, lumbering along and made a couple of low passes and finally landed. I was kind of surprised, actually, that they made the maiden flight because before the maiden flight, Paul Allen, the guy that put in all this money to create Strata Launch, uh, died. And I think I mentioned on the show, if not, I mentioned it to other people, that I, I would be surprised if this whole project kept going because he's gone now and he was the visionary for this. And um, sure enough, looks like the board of directors for the company and uh, in particular, his sister, uh, Jody Allen, uh, basically put the was it kibosh on the project. Gosh, yeah. yeah. And uh, they uh, are abandoning their efforts now to build. Uh, well, they said that it was kind of telling um, late last year uh, after Paul had died, uh, Jody Allen um, basically abandoned efforts to build a series of rockets to be launched from the large carrier plane. And uh, so it just took a little bit of time before they finally said, yeah, no, we're not going to do this anymore. So we're not going to see this big old, huge, strange looking airplane anymore. Apparently. It's a shame. It, it could have, apparently it could have taken off with uh, 1,200,000 pounds of weight. Wow. Which is uh, over, uh, 540 tons, uh, metric tons. Um, it's pretty impressive piece of kit. It could have carried something the size of uh, Saturn V. <laughs> really? Wow. <laughs> yeah. That's amazing well, when you think about that. Yeah. yeah. Huh. So, 
Yeah, I think it's sad because I I thought that was pretty a pretty cool concept and it was very neat to see such a huge airplane lumbering down the runway and coming in for landing and um I don't know, maybe somebody else will out, out there will say, "You know what? That that was a good idea and hopefully they won't scrap the airplane and make it into beer cans or something." Oh, okay. Uh I I'm I misread. Uh, apparently, the wingspan was uh, about the length of a Saturn V rocket. Ah. Not that it would carry a Saturn V rocket, which is a shame because that sounded pretty impressive. Yeah, very impressive. I know. There are all these weird uh, comparisons. They say it's half as long as the Hindenburg airship. Well, uh, how many people nowadays know, know how long a Hindenburg airship <laughs> Ah, yes, airship I remember was. as well. <laughs> people go, what the heck is a Hindenburg airship? <laughs> yeah, I'm going, really? Mm, okay. Well, what I think the wingspan was more than a football field, right? Or maybe a couple. Three hundred eighty-five feet. There you go. Three hundred feet for a American gridiron yeah. football field. Hundred yards. Yeah. Wow. So yeah, that's. Do huge. they need to put it in relatable terms? Yeah. A soccer. <laughs> it was uh, going to. Uh, it was going to carry the Pegasus uh, uh, rockets, and it could carry multiple Pegasus Pegasus XL rockets, extra large, presumably. Hmm. Very interesting. But wouldn't you agree that it is a very strange looking airplane, especially the way that kind of slopes down from where the wing root is? Oh, yeah. Down to it, the, it where the like cockpit it is. Was just, they just found various bits of airplane that might work and bolted them together. I think that's what they did. Uh, yeah, exactly. Uh, but I mean, uh, th there are other uh, projects which are much more conventional. So there's a, a V, sorry, a, a 747 out there with a modified wing that will be able to carry a rocket up. Um, mm -hmm. For example, and that's you know that's going to work. Was that work. the uh, Virgin uh, effort? Yeah, yes, it is. Yes, I so yeah. Well, interesting. Okay, well, that's about it for the news. So I think now it's about time for us to move on to one of the best parts of the show, which is, of course, your great feedback. message so last show we played some audio that micah recorded uh, he interviewed mark roboff which is or who is a member of our apg community and he's also into uh, technology in a big way especially uh, artificial intelligence and i thought we'd go ahead and play the remainder of the interview and i believe that's about six and a half minutes worth of the rest of this audio so let me uh, cue that up it's just amazing and it's mind-boggling really mind-boggling but just as we don't necessarily know right down to the blueprints and the architecture how the human mind works right we don't always know how the neural networks the artificial intelligence programs come up with their predictions we just are able to test those predictions and we can verify their accuracy so this gets to a really interesting point about not, not just artificial intelligence, people like this, not just artificial intelligence for maintenance, but artificial intelligence for flying an airplane or driving a car, right? So we know that lots of companies right now are working on the self-driving car. Tesla's working on it. Google's working on it. Ford's working on it, right? Um, uh, 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 Uber right, is working on it. And a big piece of making these cars drive themselves is artificial intelligence, right? You have to have a system 
essentially taken all of the sensor data, right, that those cameras are creating, that those radar systems are creating, right, that the LIDAR systems are creating. Right? Those are our car's senses, like our human senses, right? So you need, a, you need a system that can interpret all that information in real time, right, and then make a decision. Do I speed up? Do I slow down, right? Is there a, a ball that just came out on the road? Is there a deer that just came out on the road or a moose or in Maine? I have to swerve out of the way, right? And the technology to do that exists, right? A problem in, in, in aerospace, right? And I'll, I'll mention it's actually much easier to create an AI-driven airplane than it is to create an AI-driven car because the third dimension of air travel you know, frees a lot of the constraints that you have in making a self-driving car in an unpredictable dynamic environment. But in any case, right, you can, you can create a self-driving airplane today based on artificial intelligence. So lots of uh, R&D uh, work in that space and a lot of academic work in that space, just doing it on things like flight simulator. The challenge is how do you certify an AI software system that sits in a cockpit? Because as we know, aviation is a highly regulated industry. And because it's highly regulated, right, you just can't you know, throw in systems and software willy-nilly, right? We, we learned that from the 737 MAX. Yes, indeed. <laughs> so, you know, a big part of the, the, the certification process in, in avionics software is looking at each line of code in the software and verifying that the code does what you, know, you intend it to do. Well, <clears throat> you don't have code in an AI system. You have a system that does some action based on its self-learning of data you feed it, right? And you can't verify the path it took from interpreting that data to creating the execution algorithms that it uses to fly the airplane. That's why we, you know, sometimes in the AI field call AI as a black box, right? Technically, we call it non-deterministic software. So how do you certify non-deterministic software? That's a major question that I'm working on in the industry. So you know, I think um, a good answer to that question is, how do you certify a human pilot? You take that pilot out on a check ride, right? And when you take a pilot out on a check ride, are you wiring up his brain with diodes and taking you know, scans of the neurons firing in his brain to make sure that they're firing in the correct manner? Of course not, right? You've trained a pilot on procedure. And in a check ride, you're observing that the pilot executes procedure correctly. And if he or she doesn't, then it's more training until you can retake the check ride. I think that's how we're going to certify artificial intelligence systems, right? You're going to train them, and then you're going to test them. And the, the, the really neat thing about AI is that you can have an AI system take a thousand check rides each and every time it gets ready to take a flight. Have it take a thousand simulated check rides. Passes those check rides, and it can do it with the right compute power instantaneously. Right. You have the same level of proof that the AI system knows how to fly the plane as you do the human pilot. This is assuming, of course, that 
you have an AI system that can react and then when required react creatively to a whole host of unforeseen situations. You know? So the question is, you know, if you train a, an AI system to fly an airplane on procedure and you recreate the situation that led to the you know, miracle on the Hudson, will the AI system figure out that they can land the plane in the Hudson River? And, and that's a question that uh, uh, you know, we're working to answer in the industry today. I actually am pretty optimistic that with the right training systems and the right simulations, you can see an AI perform creatively and handle the type of scenarios that, that make people worried about a computer-controlled airplane. Mark, that sounds just fascinating, and I'm amazed, and I think we could probably talk all night about this, and I frankly, I'd really like to, but this is APG, and they already go three and a half hours a show. So thank you so much for meeting me here, and it's so great to meet you. And I hope you have a great trip back, and you're based in L.A., flying back tomorrow? Uh, yep, based in L.A., flying back tomorrow evening after another work day in Boston. Well, have a great flight, and thanks again. And for the Airline Pilot Gay, here in Wells, Maine, at the Maine Diner, this is your main man, Micah, and we're signing off. Well, thank you very much, um, Maine man Micah. Lots of Maine stuff going on there. Maine lining right there. Um, so, what do you think? This uh, artificial intelligence, um, I think it's got a long way to go before it has any capability that's even close to uh, what the human brain is capable of. Well, you see uh, these robots that are uh, supposed to be uh, powered by AI, and uh, the, the, they say, well, our robot can navigate around this course here, and it can recognize simple objects, etc. When you compare even that, and they're not very good at doing that, um, with the complexity of the environment that we work in, Jeff, uh, I think, yeah, it's, I'm going to be well dead and buried before uh, it even gets past the experimental stage. What's interesting, I was re reading an article about uh, robotics and artificial intelligence and such, and one of the chief engineers, I'm, I'm not sure exactly what her title is, uh, she worked at iRobot, and now she's with this new company. And again, I forget the name of the company, uh, but uh, she was being interviewed, and she was talking about artificial intelligence and such. And I, and I took this little soundbite from this little video that I was watching. This is not completely edited, so I'll do that in post, but uh, let me just play this. And it's, it's very telling, I think, uh, regarding this whole thing. All right, checking this thing again. Found the problem, you think we're good now? Okay. Clara Vu is the co-founder and vice president of engineering at Veo Robotics. She got her start in the field working for iRobot, the maker of the Roomba. One thing I've learned in 20 years of building robots is that people are amazing. The more you try to automate things, the more you realize that there are so many things that people do you know, naturally without even thinking about it that are difficult or impossible to automate. So what that means is that when you want to build manufacturing applications that are especially that are flexible and quick to create and change, that human interaction is a really critical part of that. You can't actually pay off the cost of full automation over the lifetime of a product. So, All right, there you go. This thing um, again. Ah, Found the problem. No, see. <laughs> that didn't work.
Um, so again, this doesn't have anything to do with, you know, piloting airplanes and that kind of thing, but uh, it does talk about the, uh, or tie in the creative aspects uh, of coming up with a new way of doing something. Uh, and the, the fact that the, the human mind is, is so capable of doing so much that we don't even realize what it's doing. Now, going back more to the um, kind of the first part that they were that we played last show, mm -hmm. um, where they were automating or at least using uh, more intelligent, predictive ways to figure out when um, something is going to reach the end of its useful life. So even like the seat that you're sitting in on the aircraft, um, I think that's a great use for for this technology. You have um, so data that you can build those models on. Um, I still don't think it it can't be the end all be all if you see something that's worn out before it's time don't just ignore it and go oh well you know the the computer system will tell us when it's time to replace this anyway um so i think you you can certainly use all kinds of artificial intelligence and and artificial um predictive modeling uh, systems to augment what people are doing with their human intelligence yeah i mean there are some things that this just is perfect for and yeah. and superior in doing. And then there are other things that I don't think that a, an artificial intelligence robot or whatever you want to call it can do. It can't match what uh, our human brains can, can do. I don't think it can replace that, honestly. So as long as, as long as we're developing all that AI, let's not lose our human intelligence at the same time. It's not an excuse to huh? stop thinking. Yeah. What? <laughs> uh... were, you, were you talking? <laughs> I maybe time to bring in the APG robots and yeah. get some control we'll, of the show. Give it, give it, you know, another twelve months. We'll just be replaced <laughs> by AI. It'll be so much easier to do the show, won't it? Oh, I'll just show up and like press a button, <laughs> and I'll just well, watch. Wait, wait, AI that's stuff. all you. That's all you do now. <laughs> well, the trouble is, our listeners all will be AIs as well. Yeah, they'll all be Perfect. bots listening. Perfect. I mean. Uh, Isn't that the dystopian future that uh, everyone worries not. about? Robots taking over everything. The, it, was, it was one of those um, clickbait kind of uh, headlines that uh, I ended up stumbling upon that little uh, bit about uh, robotics and artificial intelligence. Uh, I think the the headline was uh, "Robots have to be put in cages to protect the humans," and. So it made you think that, oh, we got to put the robots in cages so that they don't go out of control and take over the world. Well, actually, they said, no, they're they're bolted down. The cages are there actually to protect the humans from accidentally getting into the way of these robots. You know, these big arms swaying around and doing all these these mechanical uh, actions. So I thought, yeah, I, I was a sucker. I, I clicked on that <laughs> darn link thinking, yeah, they're taking over the world. <laughs> Love it. So anyway, so thanks again, uh, Micah and Mark for that. That was a, a very stimulating conversation, I think. All right. Item number two from Tim. He's uh, in the chat room, I think. Oh, is he? Really? Yes. Cool. Hey, Tim. Uh, new listener here, really enjoying the show. I always wanted to be a pilot, but due to financial restraints in my younger days, I pursued a career in public education instead. I was not able to start flight training until three years ago at age 45. At that point, my only intent was to fly for fun. The idea of being a professional pilot was absolutely nowhere on my radar. 
Then I found out about the current state of affairs in the airline industry. Shortly after getting my private certificate in late 2016, I spent the next seven months getting my instrument rating, commercial certificate, CFI, and CFII. I quit my job as a high school assistant principal and started teaching flight lessons full-time. Fast forward to today, and I am now in the midst of training for my new job at a regional airline. Yay! That's great news. Well done. Yes. All right, so uh, even as I type all this, I still have to pinch myself to make sure it's real. I am truly a blessed man. I'm not sure if you or your listeners would be interested in hearing any of my story, but just in case, here are the limited topics I might be able to intelligently contribute to. One, midlife crisis, or I mean career change. (laughs) Two, owning an airplane that pays for itself, all of your flight training, and more income on top of that. Number three, building time as a CFI. Four, how hard it is to get a regional job and to choose the right company. Five, training for your first 121 job, and he means a part 121 airline flying type of job. Uh, It's really like drinking from a fire hose. Hint, or no, is it really like drinking from a fire hose? Hint, no, it's more like getting run over by a fire truck. (laughs) Wow, that's worse. Sounds Uh, painful. Yeah, very painful and potentially career ending. Yes, Uh, yeah. Um, A couple of random coincidences from a recent episode. I'm a musician. I used to be in uh, a middle school band. Oh, excuse me. Let me read that again. I'm a musician. Used to be a middle school band director. And one of my training classmates lives in London, Kentucky. (laughs) That is a coincidence. Because we're going to be passing London, Kentucky on our way up from Atlanta to Dayton next month. Um, Keep making these great podcasts, really enjoying listening. I also plan to check out a live recording. Apparently he did, uh, according to Steph, and join the chat room soon. Cheers, Tim Lake. So, and uh, uh, Pip Pip there in the chat room says, shouldn't you be studying and not wasting time with this rubbish? (laughs) Well, his his ATP check ride is tomorrow. So he's, yeah. Yeah. You know, but if he doesn't know it by now. If you don't know it by now, yeah. and today is the day to relax and yeah. just right and, and and just drink heavily. So so I yeah. Disagree with that so <laughs> so uh, is is Pip saying uh, being self-deprecating, uh, calling himself rubbish? <laughs> no, I think he's referring to us. Oh yes. darn it! Know, Pip. We we are the rubbish. And, I tried to turn uh, that, but it didn't work. Uh, that was a nice try. Well, good to see you, Tim. Great. Thank you for your great feedback. Thank you for being in the chat room with us. And uh, yeah, you know, maybe. Good luck tomorrow. Yeah, very, very good luck for you tomorrow. I'm sure you won't have a problem at all. That's awesome. Free drinks at the hotel in one hour, he says. <laughs> well, good I don't job. know. I don't think I'm going to make it in an hour. <laughs> well, the, the person to give the free drinks to is the Blake that's going to do your check ride. Yes. So maybe uh, when, when we're stopping through uh, in London, no, he said it was a friend of his. Never mind. That's not where he is. Where is Tim right now? I don't know. Anyway, good luck, Tim. Uh, item three, Swedish Gustav. Uh, he says, hey, guys, saw this article and I thought it might interest you. It's from USA Today. And the title of the article is On Autopilot. Quote, pilots are losing their basic flying skills. 
some fear after Boeing 737 MAX crashes. And uh, I'm not going to read the article here. We'll put this in the show notes. But uh, basically, they're talking about the the whole uh, 737 issue and the fact that they were presented with an with a real problem, and uh, they had to use their their skills and their intuitions and their their human thought processes to get themselves out of it and keep the airplanes from crashing. And uh, this article kind of examines that and whether. You know, was this obviously clearly this was some kind of a problem caused by a faulty system? You know, there's no there's no arguing that, and uh, we can talk about all the problems with Boeing and the FAA and how the whole thing was certified and the fact that crews weren't uh, trained on the system and what it does, and not only that, they weren't even told about it initially. Um, but uh, something that this article raises that I've been thinking about ever since I heard these, these crashes is that, you know, as pilots, uh, shouldn't we have the capability to, uh, to analyze these situations? And, uh, I, I mean, I remember this from, I don't, you probably do as well, Nick, uh, through your, uh, military training and, and probably, uh, it, people out there with, uh, non-military training were, were taught this as well. When you have a situation, you, uh, maintain aircraft control, analyze the situation, take the appropriate action, and then we always added land as soon as conditions permit. So when you have a abnormal or emergency situation, the first thing you do is always maintain aircraft control uh, and then analyze what you have. And was that possibly a problem in these two crashes? Yes, there was a bad system. It got them into a really, really bad place. But did they do the best job they could to maintain aircraft control and analyze the situation? And I would argue that the answer may be no. So, um, again, and we've talked about it a lot on this show ever since I started podcasting in 2009, so almost 10 years now, that uh, we are concerned. I am concerned. Uh, many of us are concerned. The NTSB is concerned that pilots are losing their skills, their basic fundamental flying skills. And this is something that we really have to pay attention to. Sadly, it's been a situation, though, that's been uh, growing since the 1950s when autopilot starting started becoming prevalent uh, in aircraft. Um, there's nothing new on using autopilots for the great majority uh, of a flight. It's been going on and increasing, and now we're actually obliged in many cases to use autopilots because the airspace has become so crowded and the um, separation so small that we're not allowed to enter certain airspaces without an autopilot uh, engaged and not right. just on board, but using it. Um, and uh, yeah, it, 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 my father used to complain about exactly the same thing. He said, uh, you know, we do long haul flying. Uh, we use the autopilot for hours and hours and hours, and then we just practice uh, a bit of hand flying on the approach, a bit of hand flying on the takeoff. And nothing has changed uh, from the 70s when he was flying. So, mm -hmm. uh, you know, it, if anything, it's it's getting worse as systems become more complicated. I think it was a bit simpler when you had a fault back. Uh, there weren't that many things that could go wrong, but nowadays um, things can be masked by... Uh, s systems there to help us 
that uh, you know might actually induce a problem that we're not aware of, uh, and it requires a lot of a great deal of technical knowledge to work your way around and work out what is going wrong. And uh, shoot, I just lost my train of thought. Um, woo woo, it's just off, it's it's chugging off into the distance. <laughs> yeah, bye. Um, but uh, oh. Of great concern to me is that, and I know somebody personally, and many of us know this person uh, who is part of our APG community, who's going through a program now in Indianapolis. Uh, it's uh, a regional airline has come up with something called Lyft, which is a program to bring people in with very little flying experience, um, just you know, basic ratings, and some I think start without any ratings at all, and to kind of train them to a level where they'll they'll have the experience necessary and build up the time necessary to get on with a regional airline. And then of course, you know, rapidly get more experience and more knowledge of flying and, and then eventually get on with a major airline. But th this person uh, was telling me, and I, I was asking him and I've met him several times when I've had layovers in Indianapolis. Um, and I, I said, well, you know, how much, you know, he's talking about the, the, the program. And I said, how much manual flying? Uh, or did they em emphasize manual flying skills at all? And he said, actually, they discourage manual flight and that almost everything they do is completely with the automation. And I said, D did you ask them, <laughs> do you think that's a good idea? He said, no, I don't think it's a good idea. And I said, D have you asked them why? And he said, because this is the way they do it in the airlines. So oh, this really? is the way they're going to well, train they, them. And I think, they don't what? Do it in my airline. <laughs> I know. But most airlines out there, uh, sadly, Nick, that is the case. Well, and I know and, we know um, some folks who have quite a bit of flying experience who work for airlines that um, already have these cadet type programs. So are seeing these folks come in with, you know, uh, not a whole lot of hours after going through some of these uh, uh, ab initio programs, mm -hmm. more or less. And they've been more or less very impressed with the quality of pilots that are coming up through these programs. So... Um, I don't know. I think there's, I think there's, but what, what, a lot of different factors going on. They're, they're impressed with what kind of qualities in the, in these folks? Well, that's a, that's a good question. But I mean, just, uh, I mean, knowing know, the procedures and knowing, knowing how the to procedures, use the knowing, automation. The, knowing the aircraft well, because they've trained them specifically to that aircraft and for the company's procedures and standard operating procedures. But how well do they know? The, just the fundamentals of things and the basics of systems and how they operate when they find themselves in a situation where a system is not working the way it's supposed to work. And right. they don't have time to pull out the QRH or look at the ICAST system to go, lead them through all the steps they need to do to resolve the situation. Sometimes you have to throw all that out the window and just do what you think is necessary to do to save everybody's life on an airplane. And, you know, how do you, how and do you test part, that? That's the part I, that? I don't know. Um, yeah. And I think there's different levels of supervision that happens for these these pilots when they come out of their training um, in terms of what types of um, captains they fly with or other uh, personnel on the flight deck. Yeah. So I don't know. I, 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 I can varies. just say. I, I, I'm, not, I, I'm not saying I don't agree with your point either because mm -hmm. I do 100 um, percent. But I'm also saying I haven't been through these programs, so I don't know how much is emphasized in those areas. Do you like to think that they are? I think yeah. each one is probably a little bit different. Yeah. I think we're all agreeing uh, mm -hmm. on the same thing. Absolutely. Uh, and I have heard the same things you've heard as well, uh, Steph. Yeah. 
I'm just wondering, you know, really how, how prepared are these people to, to handle a situation that presents itself that they've never seen before. And, and Rick Bell, major bell there in the chat room is basically really hit the nail on the head. You know, there's one thing there, there are certain skills to have to be a, a professional airline pilot, but uh, there are other things, many, many more things involved in, in good airmanship. Um, and it's, uh, you know, the other, I'm, I'm just throwing out all the, um, uh, not perceived negatives, but just, um, different arguments people give for different routes of training, how people come up through their, their flying careers. Um, and I know a lot of folks argue that, you know, sitting right seat as a CFI beating up the pattern with primary, uh, flight training students might not be the best training either for getting to the airline world. Um, mm -hmm. I don't know. I still think that involves an awful lot of having to pay attention to what's going on with the aircraft itself and being aware of, um, different flight characteristics and mm -hmm. potential for, for failures and, you know, knowing what the person next to you is doing while they're handling the aircraft. And some people like Stephen Ivey and others, uh, mm -hmm. part of the APG community that are out there flying survey kind of mm -hmm. stuff will say, you know, and some people will say, well, how in the world could that possibly relate to or transfer to flying airliners with uh, 150, 300 passengers on board? I would argue that I think it's great training because most of these, th this kind of flying involves hand flying the airplane and precision flying, hand flying the airplane. And you, uh, it's just a matter of becoming one with the airplane and developing your airmanship and, and you're very likely to be in a situation every now and then that uh, is not normal uh, you're in an emergency situation. And usually you're the only one on the airplane. So it's up to you. You know, the buck stops with you and you need to handle the emergency and keep yourself alive. And so, I, I mean, I think that kind of flying is, um, is good experience to, to have. I mean, just working on those basic skills mm -hmm. of flying yep. airplanes. Um, now, you know, how does it relate, you know, in a crew concept kind of setting uh, well, that's something you have to learn after you've have those basic skills. Yeah. Uh, I think, I belt. think no matter which way you, you come up through your pilot training, there's going to be something that you're going to have to learn more about refine change potentially a little bit compared mm -hmm. to the previous flying that you've done. Um, it's all about being adaptable and being professional and taking the time to want to learn and develop those skills. I have to apologize to, um, to Major Bell and others that have uh, experience in the military, when I mentioned the you know maintain aircraft control, analyze the situation, take the appropriate action, and land as soon as conditions permit, is the standard saying and something we call stand up in pilot training. And I'm I'm sure it's probably the same kind of thing for you as well, uh, Nick. Uh, we would have a situation. We'd have a briefing in the morning or the afternoon, depending on where, whether we're doing the early morning routine or the late in the afternoon and evening routine where it was called stand-up and everybody in your class was in this room and you're at your table with your other fellow students and your instructor pilot uh, at your table and somebody would go up to the front and uh, would, would present a situation. Okay, you're up here in the air and you're flying along in flight and uh, all of a sudden you lose the right engine and you know, blah, 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 blah. And then all of a sudden, Lieutenant Nielsen, what would you do? <laughs> I can't remember exactly what they said. You'd have to stand up from where you're standing or sitting and at attention. And he's, sir, 
I'd maintain aircraft control, analyze the situation, take the appropriate action, and land as soon as conditions permit. And then you take your little kneeboard uh, checklist and you start looking for this particular emergency. And then you're reading the checklist and everybody is looking at you and they're all feeling like, oh, thank God they didn't they didn't call on me to do this. It's an extremely high pressure situation and you're being judged by everybody and you're being graded. And uh, it's just a uh, it's a very stressful situation. So I'm sorry. Rick, that I brought back those memories, um, but it's hammered into you every single day that you're on the flight line. You know, maintain aircraft control, analyze the situation, take the appropriate action, and land as soon as conditions permit. And you know, you can apply this to other aspects of your life. You know, maintain life control, analyze the situation, take the appropriate. action. I feel action. like you just described my Wednesday yesterday. <laughs> really, maintain personal control and don't I mean, kill somebody. Yeah. Don't lose your cool. <laughs> um, don't yell at people. Nick, did you have that kind of a uh, setup when you were doing your initial flight training? Nope. Oh, you didn't. You guys didn't do that. No, yeah. we used to have an emergency of the day. Uh -huh. um, and uh, I, I guess that they had some questions thrown around, but no, we were never that cruel to our students. Oh, it was, it was tough. It was uh it uh, built character, that's for sure, right, Rick? And he says, maybe we should bring stand-up to 121 training. <laughs> I don't know. It sounds not that dissimilar no, from I don't think some so. of my, my trauma surgery or Yeah, you're thrown into a very stressful situation. And oh, yeah. And you say, Dr. And then Plummer, you're, you're getting you pimped like, on the spot. Mm -hmm. Even if you're not in the stressful situation, you're just on rounds. It's like yeah. you could be on the spot at any point in time. And it is also brutal. Wow. So You learn. Well, yeah. Learn fast. Well, so I'll, I'll wrap this up. Uh, thank you, Swedish Gustav, for for um, sending us the link to this article. And uh, there's so much more to be said about this whole topic. And I'm sure that this is not the last time you're going to hear about it on the show. And uh, hopefully something will be done in the future to make sure that we don't lose these basic skills. And uh, speaking of being put on the spot, I think we need to put somebody on the spot. From his studio near the Concord Covered Bridge in Smyrna, Georgia, it's barbecue master, motorcycle rider, pontoon boat skipper, underwater photographer, and captain for a major U.S. legacy carrier, Captain Dana. Well, hello. hello. Glad I finally made it. <laughs> yeah, we are too. Look at that. He's in his uniform with the uh, four stripes. Man, it looks good on you, man. So professional. <laughs> professional oh, i didn't bother to get changed i just came straight to the podcast oh we're glad you Although did i was listening to you guys on the way on the drive in and uh, i would have to say one thing mm -hmm. it would be a far better show if the artificial intelligence took over because it'd be far more intellectual and smart and informative and probably more accurate Probably right, more artificial intelligence. It's not the real intelligence. That's like artificial <laughs> entertainment, if you ask me. Exactly. Yeah, they're they're already getting artificial entertainment. What more can <laughs> they really ask for? That's true. <laughs> they want the real thing with all the with all the, the artificially intelligent entertainment. <laughs> yes. Why wouldn't they? It's all they want is the real thing. Yeah. That's, yeah. that's why they love you guys. That's why. Well, you're part of those guys, so thank you. And yes. <laughs> so. I'm so. How how are you? I'm doing great. Just finished a four day trip. Um, we got in about uh, fifteen eighteen minutes early. 
<clears throat> of course, in the last row of the airplane, as we're beginning our descent into Atlanta, uh, when, I'm, when I get a, a ding in the flight deck and it's the flight attendant. Yeah, somebody named Teresa Bynum back here. Um, she says she knows you. I said, uh, yeah, I, I don't do know happen her. to know. I do <laughs> happen to know T- Teresa. And uh, yeah, so she said she recognized your voice and was wondering if you could stay behind and say hello when you get off the airplane. I said, well, actually, I always do say goodbye to all my passengers. Uh, and I don't leave the airplane uh, without uh, one of the pilots on it. So I uh, said, yeah, no, no problem whatsoever. My first officer had to run, catch his commute home to New Orleans anyways. So uh, I spent a few minutes saying hello to T. She does occasionally actually tune in on our show because she does work for um, the same company that you and I work for, Jeff. Okay. Oh, um, so it was very nice, and and uh, I it was my leg, so I, I you know tried to show off a little bit. Didn't do so well, but <laughs> <laughs> a little bit of a windy day, but it, it worked out. Yeah. Um, I had an interesting four day trip, and. Uh, a couple of real fun challenges in the, on this four-day trip. My uh, first officer, uh, he is a F-18 active, F-18 uh, flyer for the U.S. Navy. Um, and uh, he got hired three, three and a half years ago, roughly. And then once he finishes OE, pretty much went out on mill leave because uh, just like the airlines, the military is having shortages of pilots, so they requested that he come back. So uh, he came back, and then he was out for two years. Mind you, he just finished OE on the Mad Dog, came back after two years, and they gave him five days of training. First day was uh, in, in no no um, no uh, systems uh, refresher other than that he had to do it on his own, take his electronic version of the test when he got back. Then they gave him four days of Sims, threw him into in, threw him into a check ride, and then three days of OE. Now, mind you, he never solidified what he had learned mm-hmm. when he was here first time. Fast forward two years, now he's got, you know, he actually had him on probation. I, mean, I had to do review on him. Mm. So he was, uh, he, he, was, he was having a bit of trouble. He flies very well. Has a fantastic attitude, but I end up giving him a couple of my legs just so he could get a whole lot more comfortable. And I helped him out and, and taught him some of the ins and outs of the VNAV and then the uh, IS and vert speed and how to use the flight guidance control panel. Um, and even on my leg coming in here, I you know helped him uh, with some some more. So he feels a whole lot better than he did when he first started. So that was a, a challenging four day trip for me in that in that mm-hmm. regard. And I had something else happen. I see you we're going to say something, Jeff. Oh, no, I was going to say um, your your skills as an instructor, a certified flight instructor, really came in handy there. And, yeah, uh, that and my, my previous experience on, on this aircraft and knowing the aircraft so well as a ground school instructor, too, right. uh, and knowing those systems so so well, it, it, was, it enabled me really to put them in a situation. You know, there's some guys, you know, listen, not, not everybody's like Jeff, really nice. <laughs> You know, most guys are like me, really not nice. Well, I didn't know where you're going there. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> no, but you know, you, you you get all types when you're flying, and of course, yeah. certainly, uh, you know, some guys would eat his lunch. And you know, for the first leg, I was with him. You know, he he was kind of querying me. You know, this guy tells me to do this and this, and you know, um, I looked at him. I said, you know, you're going to have to be a good chameleon. 
But just because one guy wants you to do it one way, it's not necessarily the right way. And, mm-hmm. and one of them was that one pack uh, on the 90. And I know why guys do this. Um, but one pack on the 90 was HP bleed off. The other one HP, you know, in, in the high pressure position, which it doesn't really matter except when you sit in the gate, you get a little bit more airflow in the cockpit. Mm-hmm. I get it. But the normal operation is is in the, in the normal position. Mm-hmm. Not HP bleed off, right? Right. So we don't have that fan making all that noise in the MD ninety. I said, you know, these these are idiosyncrasies of different you know guys. You just have to be a good chameleon. So, but he had such a great attitude. I just I wanted to really go way above and beyond help him out. We had a great trip in that regard. Um, the real interesting thing that happened was we had a uh, repetitive MEL uh, minimum equipment list. It's a book that we on the airplane for those that may not be familiar with an MEL is. I'm sure if you're an avid listener of the show, you know what that is. But basically, it's a list of equipment on the aircraft that we can go ahead and dispatch the airplane that may be missing or inoperative. And the MEL that I had was a repetitive check MEL, and it was on the elevator. And <laughs> <laughs> I had that jet what? yesterday. Oh, you had that jet. Mm-hmm. Oh, well, did they do it properly then? Uh, yeah. You hope. <laughs> what's interesting about it is you know they had two different procedures exactly and so i know it's the same jet it's a 90 and uh had the there's a enunciation that comes on and to let us know because there's no indication for us what our flight control surfaces are doing um and uh one of the checks we do is or what the first officer does is he checks the tops and so he turns the ailerons looking for any binding controls and that kind of thing and uh, looking for the spoilers deployed after a certain point when you're turning the control column to the left and to the right and then when you go uh, forward and back you look for um, an enunciation that says that the elevator as is at its limit so you know that it's reached those full control limits and if you don't see that well that's not normal and then you have to do one of these two procedures that Dana is talking about here. And so when I got to the airplane early uh, yesterday morning, uh, I started looking up the minimum equipment list procedures on how to do this. And they were very involved in one, uh, the procedure one, you go into the, uh, the MCDU, the um, FMS, uh, yeah, FMS system. Uh, and you into the maintenance area of the thing and you go through, I think you had to press forward 45 times or something like that to get to the left elevator sensor and the right elevator sensor. And then I found out, I don't know if you did that procedure or not, but the left side sensor is not giving you any good information. And that's probably why the light is not working. So you have to really do the second procedure. And that involves somebody going outside and looking at the angle of the elevator based on what you're what you're doing with the uh, flight controls and <laughs> something ridiculous like uh, you're looking at something in relation to some kind of a little nut on the vertical stabilizer and it has to be ten and twenty one thirty seconds of an inch. Correct. And I'm g- thinking, well, h- how do you tell what ten and twenty one thirty seconds is when you're standing on the ground and the elevator is you up can't. there? <laughs> up to 30 feet or whatever it is you can't and that's that's the whole point of where i was going with this is yes that we had the exact same problem in cleveland with a uh um, contract maintenance person yeah we had a contract guy in uh, houston that did it 
Yeah. Yep. And so the funny part was, is he's running through the first procedure and the hydraulics weren't on it and looked and I said, well, it's never going to work. Yeah. You got to have the hydraulics on, <laughs> on the 90. Yeah. You're never going to get it to move if you have no hydraulics. So, and he was on the phone with MCC. That mm -hmm. was the amazing part. So they kind of yeah. led him down the primrose path. But, you know, the, the left side, it was going between, I think, 54 and 125, just flicking between those two numbers. Right. Wasn't cycling. That sensor is bad. In between. So the sensor is bad, obviously. So um, talking to, uh, he he's trying to work the problem. Then he has me, you know, move the elevator up and down as, you know, he goes to the back of the airplane on the ground looking up at it. And trying to figure out, you know, exactly what you just mentioned, step number three on procedure number two. So <clears throat> then I'm reading this thing, and, and I'm then talking to maintenance, maintenance control, say, yeah, you're, you're fine. I said, where does it say in the MEL that you can combine procedure one and procedure two? No, it says you do one or the other. One or the other. The guy on the phone in maintenance control was not a happy man. He says, <laughs> wait. I said, if you can tell me you can combine these two procedures, that you can verify that step number three and the procedure number two that you have used has been verified as the proper position, then I'll be happy to I'm be happy to go. But I'm not I'm gonna stand my ground on this because it's a flight control system. Um hello. 737 max i mean you know we, we, we're talking about an elevator system so i said you know we need to have this check properly and he was not a happy boy so they went and got the cherry picker went up there with a steel rod and actually measured it to make sure mm -hmm. it was within limits and i figured it would be but they tried to combine both these procedures which was incorrect yeah, you so, can't just eyeball something from 30 feet below and say that's 16 and a half degrees nope. or 10 and 21, 30 seconds of an inch. Yeah, 10 and 21, 30 yeah. seconds. So that was my, that was my um, um, uh, in-command training. Uh, <laughs> if you have an episode where you stuck by, stuck by your guns and learned something, and I got the duty pilot involved, I called my dispatcher because I want to make sure that I was reading the procedure properly, you know, mm -hmm. the MEL. Then he got the duty pilot to see what his thought was as a pilot. And then I bounced it off my buddy that works in the chief pilot's office. Um, and he said, you know, all, everybody's in complete agreement. You know, you absolutely mm -hmm. handled it perfectly. Um, and it was done properly after I insisted on it being done properly. And then, uh, you know, it, it all, they need to, all they, well, they, and well. They need to fix the thing. That, that left sensor needs to be fixed because this it, is a major hassle. It's a It's every single leg. It's yep. not something you can just sign off. It's something that has to be done every single time. Um, and other than that, a couple of really good overnights ended up uh, Cleveland overnight. And uh, that was a very short overnight. By the way, this is a reserve trip, everybody. So this was assigned to me um, on the 9th, the day before I went out, which was Monday. So it's Sunday that I got assigned this. Had a long Nashville layover and uh, then ended up getting, oh, no. Don't tell me this happened again. Rerouted. No, I got rerouted too, but mine was a good one. Mine wasn't too bad, actually. I was kind of upset because, you know, my favorite restaurant, and everybody knows, listens to the show. La Scala. My, La Scala in Baltimore. Well, I got rerouted to an eight, almost 18-hour overnight from San Antonio, where I was supposed to go for 17 hours and 48 minutes. I uh, got rerouted to uh, Baltimore. I'm thinking, 
yeah, I get to go to downtown, go to La Scala for dinner. I mean, I'm getting in at like 1 32 o'clock in the afternoon. Perfect. And it's a 9 a.m. Uh, pu- uh, push. So get to sleep in, relax, beautiful. Oh, no. No, we go to the Annapolis Hotel, which mm. is about 25 miles away from downtown Baltimore. So I'm thinking, okay, this is kind of like probably Dulles where we're in an industrial park and not a whole lot around there. You have to walk quite a bit to get someplace to eat. Uh, it's very similar to Dulles, actually. But as it turns out, they give you a free shuttle ride downtown Annapolis down by the Naval Academy in the waterfront. And it turned out to be, it was a marvelous day. Sat on the uh, waterfront looking at boats, drinking some uh, a couple of happy hour specials, and then went and had some fantastic uh, crab cakes. So uh, all in all, it was, uh, was a very nice overnight. And then watched the Bruins lose last night. So, But uh, yeah. Not a bad trip. Three legs the first day, two, two, and then three in the last day. So wonderful. Excellent. That's my update. All right. Very good. Let's see. How are we doing uh, for time? Um, didn't pay close attention. Are we quite at the two-hour point yet? Maybe not quite. We'll see if Liz chimes in and lets us know where we are. We're already past uh, only, uh, let's see. I don't think we're quite at the two-hour. An hour and a half was hour. 15 minutes ago. Okay, so we have about 15 minutes or so toward before we okay. hit the two-hour point. And I will okay. probably stick around until the point of plain tales, and then okay. I have to Excellent. disappear to unfortunately take care of paperwork. Okay. Yay. Yeah, well, the world runs on paperwork. You know, we're supposed to be in this paperless environment. But yeah, that, you're right. Yeah. yeah. You were supposed to be, you're right. You know, we have all these uh, electronic flight plans and everything else available to us. Uh, but guess what? We still kill Print everything. multiples of trees every day with paper that we gets printed with a um, dot matrix printer <laughs> at my company, which is you get like to pull off the edge of the yep. perforated edges still too. Yeah. And the thing still makes a racket. And uh, <laughs> I, th- I think <laughs> Acme <laughs> airlines <laughs> must have bought the entire inventory of all the dot matrix printers in the world and the paper that goes with it. Well, right? and in, in the, in the dead sea scrolls. <laughs> yes. <laughs> those are even the worst ones. Yeah. Oh my God. Those are terrible. The original Acme, you know, had the kind of paper that folds every, I don't know what, six inches or so. Mm-hmm. Uh, like a regular sheet. It's an eight by 11 sheet and it folds every eight, eight by 11. Yeah. Well, actually it's like half that. I mean, they're, they're, oh yeah, that's right. Yeah. Half. Yeah. yeah. Um, but uh, the, <laughs> apparently the other airline with which we merged, uh, they didn't, they had like continuous, uh, that's why Dana mentioned the dead sea oh, so scrolls. It just, like, on it's itself. like, so yeah, sometimes the agent will hand you this thing and it's like just a big roll of paper. You know, what am <laughs> I supposed to do? Paper? Where are like the little handles? You figure it out. <laughs> yeah, it kind of looks like a roll of fax paper. <laughs> it just keeps on going and going and going. Very it's unwieldy in, for sure. It's very inconvenient. But, you know, as I said, our EFB, you know, we can just pull up our uh, electronic flight plan and it's so much easier to manage than the stupid pieces of paper, but we're not officially allowed to use our electronic flight bulletin or bag uh, electronic flight plan because it hasn't, I guess the company hasn't given its blessing. So, well, we can actually use it as long as it's verified against a paper copy, but you have to have a paper copy. We have to have, and we're not signed off to be able to utilize only electronic. Yet. Right. We have to have the and paper we should. copy. But I don't know if you saw the new update, um, but when you pull up the flight plan electronically, you can go ahead and put in your actual takeoff time and then update your, your, uh, progress and then you can put in the fuel and the position times and it keeps you uh, really in the loop a whole lot better i think now and it's a wonderful 
tool. Yeah, that's that's been that way for quite some time. The HTML version of the electronic flight plan. Yeah, but you couldn't plug in the times. Yeah. I've been doing it for quite some time. <laughs> Have you? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, you put I in the. They, uh, I thought they just talked about that being the latest update. And oh, maybe there's something. Maybe there's something different. Maybe it, it does even more than it than it did in the past. I don't know. I'll have to check it out. Anyway, oh by the way, uh, somebody listening to our show uh, works with uh, ForeFlight and uh, is on the project to uh, because ForeFlight and Jefferson I think kind of merged together, right? Or they're in collaboration with each other with the Jefferson Flight Deck Pro, uh, which is the um, the piece of uh, software we use in our uh, iPads and uh, he, he sent me a, a note saying hey what do you think I think that uh, Acme is about to release the latest version version 4 of it let me know how it is and I thought I was running version 4 Dana and I'm thinking well I don't really notice much difference it seems like pretty much the way it's been for the last couple of years and then I realized that um, I went through all the procedures to make sure that I had the latest version and I realized that I hadn't done it quite properly. And so yesterday when I was in Louisville, I finally got it working. So I have the new actual Jeppesen Flight Deck Pro version 4.01 or whatever it is, a, a Jeppesen Flight Deck Pro X, Pro X, I think. And it is really, really nice. You can see if you're familiar with ForeFlight, you'll see a lot of that influence on what we're seeing now in the Jeppesen Flight Deck Pro. So it's pretty slick. I'm still learning uh, all the nuances of the software, but it's pretty cool. Yeah, and that's why I think the software updated that I actually noticed that I could put put the times in. But maybe oh, so is that what you're talking about in in the actual Jefferson Flight Deck Pro program, or are you talking about the flight plan that you download via? The flight, I'm I'm sorry, yeah, you're right. I'm I'm confusing myself. I know those are two different things, so I don't know which one we're talking about here. But anyway, it's it's good stuff. It's always improving, and uh, the guy. I, I'm sorry, I forget your name. Um, but, uh, who, who works for the for flight and the integration, uh, good job. Thumbs up. I like it. It's really I've nice. Got, I've got his name actually. Okay. Yeah, I, I have it someplace too. Okay. Thanks. Look at that. I did notice that now we have a, a pink blob, um, uh, that, uh, surrounds our little, uh, airplane, uh, pointer head thing. And I, I think I'm thinking it must have something to do with our force field or something. So we're, you can see us in the movie map display on the stars and the SIDS and the, which we could before, but now it has like a big pink circle around it. So. Circle of uncertainty. The circle, of, that's probably what it really is. It's not the circle of trust. <laughs> no. no. The opposite of whatever that is. Yeah. Circle of distrust. Um, all right. So while Dana is looking up uh, that fine gentleman's name, uh, I'm going to continue on with uh, item four. Greg, I have a question about simulator training. I'm not a pilot, but I have taken the exploratory flight at my local flight training facility, and I have many or had friends who are pilots let me briefly take the controls while flying. I'm a very sensory person when it comes to motion-type activities. For instance, if I'm driving and it's raining or slick out, I can feel my truck start to slide, and I know that I need to make some sort of correction, like slow down or steer a certain direction, etc., I think the same would apply to flying as well, hence the reason I've never been very good with flight simulators or the PC or in video games. I know the big multi-axis simulators at least give you the sense of motion side to side, up and down, but I can't imagine that they can replicate the feel of the aircraft accelerating or decelerating with increase or decrease of thrust or the G's felt in a turn. How do you deal with the lack of feel 
when doing simulator training. And this is from Greg Peterson. So, these big multi-access hydraulic um, stilt, whatever you call them, uh, what's a class D, What are, what's the specification full on these motion full motion D. simulators that we use as a class D? Mm -hmm. So sure. it is amazing what they can do with these darn things and make you feel like the airplane is really accelerating and decelerating and G forces, not so much because you pretty much mostly in one G conditions at all times. Although on occasion it'll, it'll do something that'll make you feel a little bit light in your seat and sometimes a little bit heavier in your seat than a regular one G, uh, feeling based on the way it's moving the uh, the simulator itself and as i said wouldn't you agree guys uh that steph have you ever had the opportunity to be in a full motion simulator yeah i think the one that we did um, oh the hawker years ago yep in mm -hmm. uh in uh, and Parma. actually even more than more than that something that's actually a little more accessible to everyone in the, the general public there's um i'm thinking of a ride at uh, disney world at epcot center oh um, the that, uh, soaring Soaring and also um, there's another one too that simulates like a, a mission trip to Mars. Oh yeah, um, that replicates all kinds of G forces. Yes, <laughs> like you get very light in your seat and you've gone nowhere. You know, you're just enclosed and it spins in different ways. And they have like two different versions of it too, right? Yes, there's, say... the, there's the gentle version and then the you know full motion. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, if you're sensitive, you may not want to do that one because yeah, might unless you're a little queasy used to kind of feeling these kind of forces. Yeah, right. she's right. right. Um, but yes, you can. Um, and again, Nick and Dana can, you know, you know, say that uh, they do a pretty darn good job of making you feel like the airplane is accelerating and decelerating. They do indeed. Uh, they, they, they get you uh, so immersed that uh, sometimes you can forget you're not in a real airplane. Mm -hmm. uh, military simulators have additional things to try and give you a feeling of G, uh, like they'll have a strap tightening system so that you can feel, you know, your shoulders being pulled down or whatever. Mm -hmm. But um, it, they're, they're never very successful because, you know, uh, G is such a different feeling. Mm -hmm. You say, Greg, that you're a very sensory person. Um, not an ideal thing necessarily uh, in an aircraft because one of the things we've already discussed tonight is that your senses can be very easily fooled uh, in an aircraft. And if you learn to rely on your senses uh, and trust them, then you're going to lead yourself up the garden path, I'm afraid, because one of the things we have to learn when we're doing instrument flying, and Jeff has already mentioned, you know, that you can start feeling that you're nearly upside down, uh, yet the aircraft is, uh, you know, flying perfectly normally because your senses can lead you astray. So one of the things we have to learn to do is not to trust our feelings, not to trust our senses, but to trust our instruments uh, implicitly. Um, so that's um, not necessarily a good thing. Of course, if you're flying combat and you're in a day visual environment, then you are using your your senses. You know, you you know which way up you are, and and that form of orientation, being able to throw yourself around the sky and work out exactly which way up you are, through mainly visual cues, but also other cues as well, uh, is important. But you need to know when to you have to switch that off. 
I was just going to make the point. I think that actually the 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 quintessential perfect pilot is one that can do both of those things. Who can know when you have to disregard your sensory feelings and completely rely upon your instrumentation. But there are other times when you use those sensory sensations, uh, which is a probably uh, redundant. It's sorry, tautology. Yeah, uh, and uh, but to. I, you know, I, if you've been flying long enough, and and many of us have, you can just feel sometimes that something isn't quite right, or like the airplane is like flying in a skid or a whatever, and and it's it just not it doesn't feel quite right, or uh, you're flying an approach, and even your instruments are telling you that your speed is okay, but you just get the sensation that my energy is all of a sudden we're losing energy. Um, or gaining energy, and sometimes it takes the instrumentation to to present that. It takes a little bit of time to do that, and sometimes you can. I, I, I'm, it's hard for me to tell say what I'm trying to say here. I think you have to have both of those capabilities to be the best pilot. To to have that and level, also to know when to select. Right. Which. That's that's the key. Knowing when you have to disregard the sensation. Or knowing when that sensation is really trying to tell you something and trying to keep you alive. So good point. Yeah. Martin K, by the way, is his name. Martin K. Thank you, Martin K. So yeah, big thumbs up for me uh, so far. I've only had a day, three flights of use of the uh, the new version of the Jefferson Flight Deck Pro version four, and uh, so far I'm loving it. Now, what I wish that Acme would do is they would uh, open up the port on the airplane Wi-Fi. That allows us to use our flight weather viewer to also get information because this new version of the Jefferson Flight Deck Pro also has information like digital ATIS and other information, NOTAMs, etc. That would be very handy to have uh, real-time uh, information and accessibility in flight. Uh, yeah, and uh, Netflix as well. Yeah, Netflix too. <laughs> Hulu, while you're at it, I'm sure it's just another little switch. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Just turn the Netflix on, yeah. <laughs> Do you want to um, look at 11 real quick? Kind of where the. Yes, I do, Steph. I do. I was thinking it's, the same a, it's thing. a similar question. So we should okay. probably. Oh, yeah. Look at that. Uh, Carlos uh, writes in. Uh, this, is this the Carlos we know uh, from Plain Talking UK or is this a different? No, no this is Carlos this is Francisco Carlos. Gomez. Um, he says, uh, love your show. My dad started out as an aeronautical engineer and teacher at North American Aviation in Los Angeles in the 1950s. With the, oh, North American Aviation. My dad worked for North American. Um, with the current 737 MAX MCAS controversy, he thinks that an experienced pilot should be able to feel the onset of a stall in a modern passenger jet. Is that true? Thank you for your company on all our long drives, Carlos. And uh, I'll let, I, I won't go, I want to say something, but I'm not. I'm going to let somebody else chime in on this. I'm going to let somebody who flies passenger jets t- chime in on this. Okay. Well, I, I, I could have a chime. Um, it's an interesting point because uh, ever since we started flying with uh, fully hydraulically powered controls, which are um, irreversible and you have no feel, no feedback from the controls under the control column other than the artificial feel, which quite often is just a, a spring system that comes through to the flight controls to give you the impression of uh, the increase in force on the controls because of your increased airspeed and vice versa. 
um, it's not really been true. So um, if that, uh, imagine it this way, when you're at high speed, okay, you can deflect the controls and the aircraft will react very quickly. That has not changed because, uh, you know, the aircraft uh, is at high speed and a, a control deflection will give a large response in the aircraft. But the feel through the controls um, will depend entirely on how that artificial feel system is set up. And it's usually a spring tension that's adjusted by pitot pressure, so it knows how fast you're going and knows to increase that spring pressure to make the controls feel heavier, and vice versa. Now, if that feel system is fooled by a blockage, say, in the pitot system, uh, or an error in itself, it can feed the wrong, give the wrong feedback to the pilot, in which case it would not fulfill it right in any form or manner. So, yes, the artificial field system can make the aircraft feel a bit like um, uh, a, a, an aircraft like Steph flies that has a direct flight controls. You know, they, they were just or riding. like Dana and Jeff fly. Yeah, yeah that, I was gonna. I was gonna step in and say, in, in, <laughs> that's yeah, one of the advantages yeah. to our airplane, <laughs> yeah. but not for much longer. Yeah. Um, no. okay. Uh, but uh, yeah, uh, the 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 fact that you can at slow speed you can put a lot of flight control feel in, uh, sorry, control surface movement in, and the aircraft is sluggish and uh, responds poorly. That doesn't change. Like a uh, wet so, sponge. Yeah, exactly. Uh, the buffet you get uh, pre-stalled buffet does vary from type to type. Some aircraft have very little. Some have the significant ones, and a lot of pilots in the past have misunderstood that, uh, uh, thinking it's uh, Mac buffet. So at high level, th these this buffet can come from various sources one can come from high speed one can come from low speed and they can be confused mm -hmm. um so it's not as simple as you know i'm in a cessna 150 i feel these symptoms floppy controls lack of response nose high <clears throat> buffet the aircraft stores it's mm -hmm. not that simple uh because we are fairly divorced from what's going on around us a lot we don't we don't tend to notice the noise, but there is a significant difference in noise around the cockpit when you're at high speed and low speed. And if you're attuned to that because you're experienced, then you will know, generally speaking, what environment you're in, high speed or low speed, and you can take the appropriate action. Experience. That's the key word. Yeah. Exactly. Dana. Uh, yeah. Our airplane, completely different. Yeah. You can feel it and you will know it. And, you know, very, very much in tune with, you know, if you're experienced and you have, and you know what your airplane sounds like and you know how your airplane feels, we're DC, direct cable. So everything we input is a direct feel to us. It's not a, a simulated or an artificial feel at all on our airplane. Um, so, uh, you know, one could argue on the uh, 90, it's a little different because mm -hmm. it's the powered elevator. So there is a little bit of a different feel because, you know, even like when you're coming in for a landing, you know, just a very small amount of movement on the the 90 elevator creates a lot of, you know, very small movement creates a lot of response, uh, movement on, response on, on the elevator. So mm -hmm. on the 88, we're flying this very 
well, it, I mean, it's relatively big, but it's, it's small compared to the size of the, the elevator that we're flying, but we're flying a, a, a tab on the back. So we're moving the tab and it causes the elevator to move. So we really have a direct feel as to what the aircraft's doing, what it sounds like, what it feels like. Um, you know, if all else fails, if, you know, the stall warning system fails on the airplane and, everything, you know, electrically or whatever else, and it's failed, yet would I be able to recognize the stall before it happens? I can almost guarantee it on my airplane because I've, I've, you know, I can feel it. Yeah. I can feel the difference in the airplane. The Mad Dog definitely is an exception, though, to most of the other airliners out there. And uh, having flown the L-1011 and the uh, 727, even on those, although it's been quite a while since I've flown either of them, it seems to me that most of the time you could you could feel the energy level um, if you're in tune to that kind of thing, but Nick made a very good point. Uh, a lot of times this, this little tiny buffet, um, uh, we used to call it in the uh, air force in the T 38, uh, like uh, little mice on the wings, not elephants on the wings. So that was when you were in a full stall in a T 38. Uh, but if it's just a kind of a, almost like a little vibration, um, on the, uh, on the mad dog, it can, um, it can mean that you're it can mean a couple of different things. It can mean that you're going too slow or it can mean you're going too fast. In fact, I'm sure that Dana has experienced this. I know I have a couple of times where you might go into a, uh, controlling your speed, um, overriding the uh, vertical navigation system and the, and the throttle system where yeah. you set a certain uh, thing because you're trying to attempt to do something and then you forget that you've, you're still in this override. And so when you make that uh, indicated airspeed to mock transition, uh, sometimes it just keeps on the, you know, you, you miss it and it keeps on increasing the mock, increasing the mock, increasing mock. And on our airplane, we start getting something called a mock buffet where, uh, the wing is, you know, just some parts of the wing are actually starting to go, uh, supersonic and you're getting that, that, that onset of like a little, it feels like at first you're thinking you're in turbulence and then you're thinking, well, it really doesn't feel like the turbulence that I'm used to feeling. And then you look down and, and you realize that you're still an override and your indicated is still a reasonable number, but your mock might be getting close. And for us, it's usually around the 79.8 uh, regime uh, because we don't have a very fast wing. And, uh, and then you go, oh, oh, yeah, I need to go back to, you know, the normal mock setting, which is for us usually around 7.677 or 7.5 to 7.7, usually in somewhere in that range for a no normal mock cruise mock situation and then all of a sudden magically that little tiny buffet goes away but um again nick mentioned the key the clue is that we also have a lot of wind noise over the airplane when it's going fast so if you're starting to feel that little tremor of a, a buffet and there's a lot of noise air noise that probably means that you're at the high end of things and you're going maybe a little bit too fast uh, whereas if it's very quiet, you don't have a lot of wind noise and you're starting to feel that little tiny buffet. That's me. That's giving you the indication that you're getting too slow. It's interesting though, the difference between uh, how the aircraft feels at VREF at our landing speed, approach speed and at stall speed though, Jeff, there's, there's not a significant level of or number of cues between that. So mm -hmm. if you allow the aircraft just to get a little bit slow, five or 10 knots below V ref, I don't think there's an awful lot you can hang your hat on in this, that situation. On your, on your airplane, but on, on your airplane, airplane. Uh, our controls really start feeling very sluggish. It's like something yeah. is not right because we're not getting 
the response that we're expecting from a certain deflection. And then, so that's, again, one of the advantages of the old technology kind of flight control systems that we're using on the, on the man. It's like, I, if I notice I'm getting slow, it's not because I've looked down on my airspeed indicator. It's because you can I feel can, it. I can feel mm-hmm. it. You can sense it. I can sense it, feel it and mm-hmm. almost, you know, don't, don't have to, I don't have to look. So I, I, I know what's going on. And then the sometimes you just have to go, you know, something is just not right. I think we're like maybe 5,000 pounds heavier than what we think we are. And then sometimes we'll even say we need to do a load audit to see what's going on here. Yeah, especially especially on the takeoff. I mean, we on yeah. takeoff rolling, you go to pull the airplane off the ground. You, yeah, and the next thing you are fighting, it doesn't want to come off. Yeah, uh, either they you know misload extra weight or just didn't balance it out properly. So right. yeah, and of course the one gauge that we are often missing from modern airliners that we would all love to have is an angle of angle attack. Of attack. Yes. Yeah. yes, yes, which which actually tells us directly uh, and very simply exactly what the airplanes do. And guess what? All of the air- airplanes that we fly have angle of attack indicators, or I'm not indicators, sensors. Yeah, that are feeding various systems of the airplane. But in most airplanes out there flying passengers around, we don't actually have the displayed angle of attack, and that's critical information that I think that all airplanes should display to the pilots. Yeah. And the, since the most, it was an angle of attack failure that uh, led to the MCAS yes. problems, uh, it would have been much easier for the pilots to have diagnosed had they had yep. each pilot had his own angle of attack indicator. I agree. Which I think I think we're all dancing around with the MCAS that uh, you know what he asked is the MCAS controversy. You know the airplane doesn't fly like an it flies like an old airplane, but it's with new systems. It's an old airplane with new systems on it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they've shifted around and, and moved the CG with the higher engines further forward, heavier engines. So that's where I don't, I'm not sure that these pilots ever could have felt the stall because it has the computerized system, the hydraulic system on it. So it's not really not like our airplane. It's more like Nick's airplane is really what I'm trying to say. So, yeah, but uh, I think in know, both of the situations, stall was not a factor. It was no, it, it wasn't. Spectrum. That's going directly to his yeah. question, though. So, oh, okay, yeah, good point. That's kind of, kind of where I'm going. Oh man, we could just talk for hours on this kind of stuff. This is good. Uh, good questions we have from our great APG community. Thank you very Absolutely. much for that. Yep. Um, now it's time for the best part of the show, which of course everyone knows: the old pilots' plane tales. And this is the second part to Dax on D Day. The Old Pilot's Plain Tales, Dax on D-Day, Part 2. To conclude this tale of the participation of Betsy's Biscuit Bomber, a World War II vintage Douglas C-47, in the 75th anniversary of D-Day on the 6th of June 1944, I cover the background of some of the pilots in the aircraft's history and how it got to take part. So I'm here with uh, Sherman Smoot, who is uh, the chief pilot of uh, Betsy's Biscuit Bomber. Is that right? That's right. Okay, how did you get involved with this wonderful airplane? Well, uh, I was a member of the Australia Warbird Museum, and and, uh, one of our donors, um, Glenn Thompson, uh, bought the airplane, and uh, he needed somebody to go up and ferry it back from Canada. So uh, I said, I'll go. You know, so we uh, we went it, went up there and 
the mechanics went up first, got the airplane fine, been sitting up there outside for eight years. And so they got the engines cleaned out and ran them. And then I went up there and went up with another guy who had much more time in a DC-3 than I did, and we brought it back. It's a remarkable airplane with a fantastic history. Could you tell me a little bit about it? Well, the, the records show that the best that we can get is that uh, uh, she arrived in uh, uh, England probably about a month or so after actual D-Day invasion. So she missed D-Day about four to six weeks, but she participated in, in uh, a lot of the other drops. She carried a lot of the VIPs around, but she is a complete paratrooper configured airplane. Uh, we think she did the drop in the Bulge and Market Gardens, but um, uh, we do know that she spent, um, at the end of the war, um, uh, she was part of the Berlin Airlift. Then she went to the Belgian Air Force, and then she went to the French Air Force on Lend-Lease, and then the French sold it to the Israelis. Now, I don't know how you get a leased airplane, you sell it to the Israelis, but they sold it to the Israelis, and the Israelis had it for uh, oh, probably 20 years, and they flew it. Uh, they, they put some extra antennas on it and used it as a spy plane. Really? A spy plane? Yeah, they, they, they listened to all the recordings and all that stuff. Uh, and, uh, and then they, uh, they didn't retire. They put it in their fleet reserve program. So it spent another 10 or 15 years um, on, on ready reserve. Uh, they did all the inspections. They ran the engines. They flew it once in a while, but it really didn't fly at all. So when we got the airplane... Total airframe hours in this airplane is 9,600 hours. Wow, that's low. Really low. Most DC-3s are 40 to 50,000. So it, it could have an enormous life ahead of it. Oh, yeah, she could. We, we just uh, rebuilt the wings, had the wings gone through. We did the spar check, pulled the, demated the wings and went through that and found a little bit of corrosion and had to re, re, replace some of the flange angles, but she's ready to go. Now, the, uh, the flight out must have been interesting. Have you been uh, down there, is it the, the Blue Spruce route before? Never. So, uh, tell me, where, how did it go? Well, you know, I mean, I've been across the Atlantic many times as an airline pilot. And, uh, but that, but, you know, there you have a flight attendant call button, a first class meal and a drink holder, you know. Uh, going across the old routes, uh, it was tough. I mean, a lot of planning. Uh, you're always iffy on the fuel when you get there. And if you get there and you can't land, then you really don't have much options. You have to, uh, there's a few other ships up there, but none of them have fuel. So, you know, so it would took a lot of planning and it, we watched the weather really, really closely because anytime you go through Greenland, you know, the weather is always changes in a minute there. Now, um, did you drop into places like Sonderstrom Field? Yeah, we did. We landed in Sonderstrom. Uh, originally, we were supposed to go to Narsarsarak. But we didn't because the winds were just too unpredictable. They were blowing 40, 40 knots and uh, uh, pretty much down the runway. But, you know, the winds can change at any moment. And when you get there, this airplane will not land at a 43-knot crosswind. So, But it must have been quite impressive. I mean, I've only heard about the place and had it on our maps as an emergency diversion. But it must have been a beautiful airfield air to land at. What, Sutterstrom? Yeah. Oh, yeah. That whole thing is beautiful. We, uh, we actually had one of the helicopter pilots took us... Um, Took us under his wing when we landed there with the SAR helicopter pilots, and he, we drove us all up to the to the ice cap, and we were uh, we were standing on the Greenland ice cap, and it was it was spectacular, spectacular. We went up there and we drank a little vodka, you know, and and uh, it was amazing. And then taking off, we flew over the ice cap to Iceland, and it's all white, and except 
this guy said, you guys, you're right on the route. Take a look. All of a sudden, you'll see a, what looks like an um, oil rig out there. But it's not. It was the early warning radar system for the U.S. government. You know, and there's two of them. There's one at 100 miles and one at 200 miles. And uh, we're flying along. All of a sudden, I saw a black speck out there. And I said, well, what is that? We went took a look. Flew you know. There it was. I just right out of the middle of the ice, there's this structure. And it was an early warning system. People actually lived out there. And he told us he's landed a helicopter out there. And he, he said, this, you can walk into the place. It's, they left so fast. It looks, they left the dinner. The place settings were set on the table. It's, it's, it's unbelievable. Wow, what a sight that yeah. must have been. Iceland, uh, an interesting place? Yeah, we were going to spend an extra couple of days there uh, just to sort of relax a little bit since we, you know, we're on our last leg to get across the Atlantic. And um, the weather was coming up and we couldn't find a place to stay. Uh, our rooms, we only had our rooms there for one night. The next night there was no, there was no place to stay. So we just loaded up the airplane and came down to Prestwick. But uh, Iceland was beautiful too. Absolutely. Now that leg from Iceland to Prestwick is quite a long leg, isn't it? Yeah, it's uh, probably about 700, 750 nautical miles, something like that. And, and uh, yeah, it was it, actually it was our longest leg. And um, uh, but we had tailwinds, so it worked out good. And, and Betsy behaved herself. Oh yeah. Well, she's been a she's been a solid thoroughbred. I mean, you know, our only real issues uh, were really right here in Duxford. You know, our biggest issue and. Uh, we we have we had a starter clutch was starting to slip a little bit, so everybody liked to just change the starter. Well, when they went to put the starter back in, actually they got it in. Uh, they reached up and grabbed it on the generator. The generator like almost falling off the airplane, and so we thought, oh shit. So they pulled the generator off and it sheared all the gears inside. And and uh, that's the only thing we didn't bring was a spare generator. So, uh, you know, we made a send out emergency text to all the guys and the guy walked over with the generator and said, here, use this. And, you know, when you get yours, send it to me. So put the generator on. She's running good now. And then the other engine, we were just doing an inspection just to like to make sure it got to tighten her up once in a while. So they're going through the engine and uh, they found uh, the top rear cylinder, uh, the intake, short intake stack that, that's attached to the cylinder was all wobbly and just flopping around in there. And somebody had riveted it in. And uh, so we, we had a spare cylinder, so we elected just to change the cylinder, and now she's running fine. Brilliant. Now, I ought to make the point that you're an ex-U.S. Navy uh, Phantom pilot. Is that right? Yes, sir. So uh, it must have been marvelous flying off a carrier in the Phantom. I, I envy you. Well, yeah. I mean, it was, um, it was very rewarding. I, the Navy flight program, I think, is the best in the world. I mean, it teaches you how to concentrate for sure. Uh, but you flew Phantoms. I mean, it's just a lovely airplane, you know. Oh, it, oh, it is. But the idea of doing a, a night deck landing uh, would have filled me with great trepidation. Well, the Phantom is a very stable platform. I mean, you know, what, uh, it, we use it a lot in Vietnam as a bomber, quite frankly. And, uh, you know, if it wasn't for some of the computer things that the A7 or the A6 had, you know, we were, and every once in a while we'd practice behind the ship, just iron bombsite practice. Phantoms would win all the time. It pissed them off, <laughs> but we would win because it's a good, stable platform. Come aboard the ship, it's rock solid. I mean, it wasn't like the F-8 or, or any of those other, the A-7, because they had a little bit of spool-up problem, you know, but the Phantom was rock solid on the on, on approach. So you, you could have done it. It wouldn't have been a problem. I would have loved to have had it go. What did you fly in the Civi Weld? 
Uh, well, after I got out of the uh, uh, military, I got a job with the airlines. Tell everybody I went to the dark side. Instead of making a military career, I decided to go for the airlines. And, and uh, in Continental, I flew for Continental for 28 years. And uh, I flew all the Boeings except the uh, the 7-4. I didn't fly the 7-4, didn't fly the 7-3. But I flew the 7-2, um, 7-5, 7-6, and 777. And uh, I, I flew the DC-10, loved the DC-10. I think that was one of my favorite wide bodies. It was my favorite wide body until the... Triple Seven came along, and then I thought, okay, this this is a pilot's airplane. They did a nice job with the Triple Seven. Um, then I flew the MD eighty, and and uh, I have other type ratings too. But you know, those, but that was those were the airline airplanes that I flew. Brilliant. And uh, nowadays uh, you're well retired and just flying this beautiful C forty seven around. Do you have anything else that you uh, you like to take airborne? Yeah. Well. Yeah, I uh, I flew. Um, we got to fly Spitfire here yesterday, and uh, that was amazing for me. And um, but I'm fortunate enough to to I fly Warbirds sometimes. You know, I get uh, my first Warbird I ever flew was a P47 Thunderbolt, and uh, that was amazing to me. And then from there, started racing the unlimited race class at Reno, and so I've flown Mustangs before and P40s and those kind of airplanes. But uh, uh, it's just I've been Blessed, I guess. I don't. Lucky. That's pretty much what it is. Is luck, you know, an aviation that's skill and luck. But you know, there's there's a very fine line, you know. So I mean, aviation is uh, probably half luck as it is skill. That's the way I think of it. Well, that's that's a brilliant uh, thought. Anyway, I'd like to thank you very much indeed for chatting to us today, Sherman, and uh, I wish you very well with the flights you have uh, over the next few days over to Normandy. Thank you. We're looking forward to it, really. Having talked to Sherman Smoot for a while, I then found Nick Camacho, the friend of the APG show, who had invited me up to Duxford to look around Betsy, and I asked him how he got involved with the aircraft to eventually become one of its pilots. Uh, but basically, I, uh, my dad was a uh, radial engine mechanic in the Air Force back in the 60s. Um, when he kind of transitioned into civilian life, he stayed in the maintenance uh, aviation maintenance industry and actually got involved in the 80s uh, with a C-47 uh, flown out of a museum in Topeka. And uh, so I actually grew up with my dad uh, flying a, a different C-47. Uh, this was actually, this airplane was called Kiroi. It was out of the Combat Air Museum in Topeka. And uh, so from the time I was born up until 90, 1995 when they stopped flying the airplane, uh, I just spent tons of time in the summer with my dad in the airplane. My first airplane ride I ever took, I was 10 months old on my mom's lap in that airplane. So I've been a C-47 guy since the very beginning. Uh, and then, unfortunately, the uh, museum made some decisions and uh, decided to uh, stop flying the airplane in 1995. Uh, so I kind of went off and did some uh, other things. Still kind of stayed involved in aviation. Uh, my, dad, uh, my dad had all his ratings and um, did a lot of flying before I was even around, and, and so we stayed in aviation, but kind of got out of the Warbird thing a little bit. Um, still always loved Warbirds and round engines, and then I went to school in California, in San Luis Obispo, and uh, my third or fourth year in school out there, um, uh, we just, there was a museum about half an hour from my school, and so we were just stopping by there. My dad, uh, my dad's from that area of California, so he'd come out to visit me regularly, uh, we stopped. We stopped at this museum, and they had just finished um, 
repainting what is now uh, Betsy's Biscuit Bomber. This was, uh, they acquired the airplane in about 2007, I think, um, and spent a couple years cleaning it up and repainting it. And then in 2009, uh, we showed up maybe just a couple of months after the first flight kind of, you know, they got it recertified in the States and everything in the first flight. And so kind of with my background and my interest, I went up there and kind of started helping them. And it's a fairly small group and they were uh, incredibly gracious and kind of sucked me in right away. And uh, so that's how I got involved. And, you know, once I got kind of got involved, our chief pilot, Sherman Smoot, I got to know him pretty well. And uh, it actually turned out that he gave my dad, uh, he's also a local guy out there to uh, the central coast of California. And he gave my dad aerobatic instruction at Satabria in like 1968. So they had known each other from way back and then, you know, moved forward. And now uh, my dad and I both started flying the airplane. My dad's a PIC rated pilot in the, uh, captain rated pilot in the airplane. Um, and so we both started flying the airplane with Sherman and we've added a couple of um, pilots to the group. So that's kind of the quick version of how I got into it. Uh, so when I got involved in the airplane, uh, my dad had some friends uh, out in the same area and was actually friends with the chief pilot. And so when I got involved with the airplane a decade ago, he kind of, we kind of got into it together. And then uh, my brother's also uh, kind of a history buff and also a pilot and everything. So when we had the chance to come over here, uh, he's going to be over here with us for three or four days. And then my dad's here for the duration. He's actually here for longer than I am. <laughs> now, I didn't realize you're an entire family of pilots, yeah? At least all, all the male side. Yeah. Yeah, so my mom... Uh, provides all the support, and then, yep, my dad, uh, my dad's a pilot, and then my brother and I are both uh, rated, uh, are both certificated pilots also. And also your engineers. Uh, yeah, so I'm, my dad is a, uh, I assume you mean mechanic, in the States. Uh, my dad is a, an AMPIA uh, rated mechanic or engineer, and then I'm pretty close, I'd say in the next uh, three or four months, planning to take all my tests, I've done all the experience stuff and everything to do, um, to get my airframe and power plant uh, certificate for mechanicing in the United States. And then my brother is a little less so, he's, he's a, a little more basic uh, wrenching type of stuff, but he does also mess around with the airplanes a little bit. But me and my dad spend a lot of time working on it. My enormous thanks to Sherman, Nick, his family and the entire crew of Betsy's Biscuit Bomber for sharing their stories with me. Awesome, awesome job again. Uh, such great stuff uh, packed in to these uh, plane tails, especially the Dax over D-Day or on D-Day and Dax over Normandy and the Betsy's B Biscuit Bomber and hearing the chief pilot and our Good friend and APG community member, Nick Camacho. Yeah, I was just chatting to Nick a little earlier in the day. He's in Berlin right now. I did uh, give him uh, Tillman's contact numbers in case he wanted oh. to go to the Circus Brewery and have a beer. <laughs> That's a the bottomless beer. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh, well, I'm sure he'd get a few uh, free bits, yeah. but uh, I think he's uh, he's a bit busy. But uh, he's heading home uh, not long, so uh, they've been having a wonderful time, apparently. Great. That's Glad great. to hear that. Well, Steph, you're still here with us. We thought we were, you were going to be leaving us. Well, I was going to say 
goodbye before you started playing. Yeah, Tales, I'm sorry. <laughs> and you just launched right into I it. I just wanted so you to I be with that would us be kind of longer. rude for me to just disappear. <laughs> I didn't want to do that. Um, and plus, I stuck around here playing Tales, so added bonus for me. But no, I really do have. Unfortunately, um, gosh, it's just been busy times at work recently, and um, a little behind at the moment. So uh, before it gets too late and I lose out on a bunch of sleep, I'm going to go take care of the pressing matters that need attending to. But it's been wonderful chatting with you all today. And I'm sorry, I'm going to miss the last few minutes of the show here, but yeah, you're saving all 30 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> You'd be surprised how much that makes a difference. Sometimes I, I know I should, but <clears throat> just stick around, but no, no, um, have a wonderful rest of the show and I will catch you all next week. All right. Cheers, bye. All right. Cheers. Bye. 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 <laughs> okay. Uh, let's keep moving on. Uh, try to get as much of this knocked out as we can. Uh, let's hit number five, the next one in the normal trans, what's the word? Trans, I was going to say transgression. That's not right. Uh, in the, uh, although we do transgress quite often. Yeah, we do. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, I'm not even going to try to figure out what the word is. And I'm just going to start talking about this one. Um, First of all, thank you for making our lives a little more enjoyable week by week. I appreciate your efforts. My question, and again, this is Marcus. um, Let's see. Most pilots, statistically speaking, are right-handed. One would assume that flying from the right seat with the right hand on the yoke or stick would be more intuitive for them than later in the career from the left seat. As a right-handed guy who has only flown simulators at home, until now, and hopefully we'll start uh, light sport aircraft flight training soon from the left seat. I'm curious how this will turn out. So how did you feel, or excuse me, so how did you deal with this during your careers? Thank you, and all the best from Germany, Marcus. So, um, I think we, we've touched upon this uh, over the years on the show, uh, how you would think that making the transition from right seat to left seat would be a, a major thing. And it, it, it is a little weird or odd at first, but then it doesn't take, it takes not as long as you'd think to, to uh, get used to the fact that instead of the right hand on the yoke and the left hand or the control surface and the left hand on the throttles and then the other way around, it, it really doesn't take long at all to get used to swapping hands. At least that's, I think the, the, uh, majority of people, uh, people's experience. Now Dana is the most recent one that, um, made the transition from first officer to captain on the mad dog. Uh, what was your experience, Dana? I'm sorry. I had to, <laughs> I just shoveled down dinner real quick. Oh, well, well, I'm um, sorry. You still have no. a mouthful of food. I'm my bad. I actually just have a, uh, a toffee in my mouth right now. Oh, okay. Letting it melt. But anyways, um, it was a a challenging experience. I really didn't think moving thirty six inches to my left, as you know, from first officer to captain, would make that big of a difference. But it's a completely different world. Um, hmm. It really is because now all the decisions. You know, it used to be as a first officer. Go ahead, Jeff. You bet. No, no. I was going to say. I think what he's asking about is the actual ergonomics of. The, the your hands on the controls and that aspect oh, okay. of it, not of uh, the role of being somebody who is just there along for the ride <laughs> for the most well, part I mean, and uh, being responsible for everything. 
And I'm sorry, I missed. I completely missed it because I just quite literally sat down. Oh, I'm sorry. So I, I wasn't man, looking I even to see that you were gone the whole time. Yeah, I just quite literally sat down. Okay. Yeah, so, <laughs> so he's just talking about the actual physical ergonomic aspect. Okay. Sure. Um, you know, the big thing is relearning how to fly with the left hand. Mm-hmm. You know, ergonomically speaking, everything's completely different. So when when you, you used to fly, and, and, and ironically speaking, all the way back when I was a flight instructor, and once I became a flight instructor, I always flew from the right seat. Even if I was in my own airplane all by myself, I always flew from the right seat. It was crazy. So I always like flying with my right hand. So I can fly equally with either hand. I mean, I've gotten very, very used to coming back to the left seat and flying with the left hand. It's just, it's a different motion. And it took... Um, I don't know. It, it maybe took me two or three hours worth of flying to get completely comfortable. Yeah, so not with it. that long. It's not very long. Um, you know, it, it's it's just a motor function. So the 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 flight controls themselves um, are the same. It's just just different motions on different sides of your body. Mm-hmm. Uh, the biggest thing that <laughs> I find uh, most challenging in in the uh, in flight controls is actually using the rudder pedals and brakes all the time and driving in, in the the uh, the tiller to drive the airplane. Mm-hmm. That to me is uh, that's the biggest difference. And as far as uh, changes go for me and using my left hand all the time con- to control the aircraft on the ground. So, um, and that was, that was a very much a learned, um, a learned uh, feeling to be able to feel how and understand how the, the till is going to react, how much, how much motion, you know, keep the airplane from not rocking back and forth. Um, so that was a motor muscle function that I was not really ready for i don't think and uh, i've mastered it now it's it's much better um so um for me it's no big deal really it really was a non-issue yeah um nick you had a lot of experience in flying many different types of airplanes especially in the military and then in the civilian world and did you you didn't start off in the left seat in the civilian world did you um no certainly not um So, yeah, I mean, everything I flew, including uh, the Airbus, of course, a single-handed stick, Uh, not a yoke, never flown with a yoke except uh, for once in my life, which was on my skills test uh, prior to joining the airline in a 747 simulator. Um, But uh, uh, I guess with both hands on a uh, yoke, you're kind of getting the feeling because both hands are doing the job. True. Uh, and then you just take your right hand off to move the throttles. Uh, you, your left hand must continue doing the same sort of thing. Uh, when you've just got your right hand on the stick and you've only ever done that uh, for, you know, I guess 25, 30 years when I jumped into the left seat uh, to swap those hands around uh, wasn't the easiest thing. I could do most things. I just found it was that finesse, that little, uh, the, the small motor functions you do when you just tweak and just ease and just uh, gently try and put a little pressure on rather than make a big move. And all the big movement actions were fine. When I needed to do it, I could do it. But that, I, I just found I didn't have quite have that level of finesse. Interesting. Yeah. I learned it after a while. Though. <laughs> mm-hmm. So, 
Yeah, I guess, you know, every, except for my flying the 141, well, no, even in the Air Force and the 141, most of the time I was flying that airplane uh, because I never checked out as an aircraft commander on it uh, because I just wasn't on the airplane long enough to do that. Uh, there were, we had something called the first pilot where you would do, it was kind of like the transition between being a co-pilot and being an aircraft commander. They they let you fly in the left seat um, for certain flights just to kind of get used to that and make it an easy transition when you did go to aircraft commander school. Um, but uh, 99% of the flying of the 141, the T-38, the T-37, all that was right hand on the stick and left hand on the throttles. And it wasn't until I got hired by ACME that, well, even then, as first officer, still the same thing. Right hand on the control yoke and left hand on the throttles. But you make a good point regarding a control yoke where uh, you have many times when you're manually flying, you're, you have both hands on the control yoke and only periodically do you take your one hand off to adjust the throttles. So, um, but I don't, it, to me, it, it just didn't seem like it was a big um, transition. It didn't take long to kind of get used to going like this to this. Yeah. So I guess it depends on the person and what your experience is before you, before you make that transition. Yeah, I had to climb back in the right seat for a few trips when I was on call and got called out, not as a captain, but to fly as a first officer. Now, I wasn't allowed to operate um, takeoff and landing from the right-hand seat, but I was could be a, res, uh, a relief mm -hmm. pilot, and I was fine. I could, uh, in theory, fly the airplane from the left seat when I was in relief, but at times I'd have to give um, let the first officer climb out and uh, go and take some rest, and I'd climb in the right-hand seat. I wasn't allowed to be pilot flying in that seat, mm -hmm. and even just working the radios from that seat was very confusing <laughs> <laughs> because after eventually after so many years sitting on the other side of the cockpit, um, you know, just everything felt completely different. It was it's, weird. What's interesting is uh, we have a, one of our good uh, – you're all good, of course. Uh, one of our APG community members has just made the transition from first officer to captain. Uh, congratulations, Captain Craig. And uh, he said he was talking about in social media about how, you know, he keeps putting his hand in the wrong place and turning the knob the wrong way or looking to do something. And, you know, but it's it's still very new to him. But I'm sure that before he knows it, he'll be used to where to put your hand and, you know, land. Oh, like Absolutely. But it's a good question, Marcus, from Germany. Thank you for asking it. We have an, a related uh, question from Magnus uh, Gladden uh, he, uh, via Facebook. Uh, he says, hi, Captain Jeff and crew. I have a question regarding this video. And then he gave us a link to a YouTube video. Is it common that both pilots are holding the yoke during approach and landing? I thought only the pilot flying held the yoke. In this case, the captain. So... Uh, uh, I thought it was kind of funny because I, I went, huh, what's going on here? I don't recall ever seeing this kind of situation. And then when I watched the video, uh, the airplane they were flying was a 747 and it's the captain's leg and the airplane's on autopilot. And it does appear that the first officer, well, it, it, it's true. He is actually putting his right hand on his yoke although it's the pilot flying his leg. And then I realize what's happening here because the pilot monitoring is working in the radios. He is putting his hand on the control yoke 
And on the right side of the airplane, the push to talk switch, one of the push to talk talk switches is on the yoke itself and on the right hand side of it uh, toward the top. And so the reason why he has his right hand on the yoke is that he is talking on the radio and he's pressing this button, which you cannot see clearly on the YouTube video, but knowing what's happening there, a a pilot who has flown in an airplane like this uh, recognizes it right away. And um, now this is one of my pet peeves. I should try to find that, uh, that sound effect that I don't get to play very often. Uh, Where is it? Uh, Shoot. (laughs) I'm going to play it. You're making a peeve that you can't find your peeve. Yes. Okay. I don't know how you feel about this, Dana. (laughs) I think you know where I'm going. I think I do. When you're hand flying in the airplane, I think that the person who is pilot monitoring should, if it's, if it's a avail, I think most airplanes have the capability of activating the microphone switch, either on the yoke itself or the, or the control stick, which in, in the Airbus situation, it doesn't matter because if you're the, the air, they're not connected. And so you can't feel if somebody is using the microphone switch on the, on the side stick controller on an Airbus, right? I mean, there's no connection there. It won't bother you. Even if you're hand flying the airplane, right? You can't feel if somebody else has their hand on their side stick controller and pressing the microphone button, right? Nick, I mean, uh, no, because they're, um, well, they're not connected, is, they're locked and uh, they don't move, right? Oh, okay, so, so I'm moving mine and his is stationary, so I can't feel anything he's do- doing with his stick. So, on a traditional <laughs> control so airplane, <laughs> on a traditionally controlled airplane like the one that Dana and I fly, so I'm actually still hand flying an airplane and I'm controlling the yoke. Sometimes it's like I'm starting to try to turn the airplane, I'm going why am I getting this resistance? Like, come on. What, you know, and then I look over and my first officer has his hand on the yoke and he, because he's using that push to talk mic switch on the yoke Mm -hmm. to talk on the radio. And I'm thinking, I want to go like, like, you know, bump it really hard. Like get your hand off. the. I never say anything. I'm nice about it. But, uh, although occasionally I do say this is, especially somebody who's pretty new on the airplane. I said, this is just a suggestion when the guy, the captain in this case is hand flying the airplane. Uh, it's probably a better idea to use the microphone switch on the interphone panel to, you know, talk on your headset microphone so that you're not actually inputting whether you realize it or not, you know, I can feel your hand on the, on the control yoke and it's kind of weird. Uh, so that's what's happening in this video. He is not controlling the airplane. He's not putting his hand on the, on the control yoke just to follow through with what the pilot is, the pilot flying is doing. It's because it's just, easier for him, I guess, to put his hand on the yoke and use the microphone switch. Well, so I, I, I do have to say one thing, Jeff, and that is in that certainly going back to the question about, uh, you know, left seat, right seat and the ergonomics, uh, the captain side mic switch on the, on the, on the audio panel mm-hmm. is far easier to reach than okay. it is on the first officer side. It's a long reach. Yeah. So I've never almost, done it on the, um, I, yeah, I've not had the experience of being a first officer in the right seat on the Mad Dog. I never did that. So I don't know. Maybe you're right. I don't know if it's it, kind it, of more it, difficult to do or not. Yeah, it's it's because we're, our, we're on the captain's side where the, mm-hmm. uh, the, the um, um, wheel to control the you know, nose gear on the ground, mm-hmm. uh, that's where it is on the first officer's side. Okay. So for us, it's further back 
in a little closer to us for, for the first officer, they have to quite literally bend over and reach forward to get to it. So it's much easier. And I was very, I was very, very well aware of exactly what you're talking about as a first officer. I would never grab the yoke. I would just grab the switch, not even grab, I just, mm -hmm. you know, pull it towards me. And, and thus when you were flying, you'd never even know I was touching it. Right. I would just follow it and kind of, you know, guide my hand, but that's just an experience. When the autopilot's on though, it doesn't matter because right. you know, the other pilot's not going to feel your input on the yoke uh, at all because the, Airplane is flying. The autopilot system is flying the airplane. Yeah, yeah but I'm, I'm talking about when, when you hear. No, flying. I agree with you. I'm just letting yeah, yeah. people know uh, that are listening who have not, you know, experienced this kind of thing. That if the autopilot system is on, then it's no big deal for you to either of you to grab or have your hand on the yoke because the autopilot is flying the airplane. Now the control yoke is still moving, and a lot of times if you're flying coupled approaches, especially low visibility coupled approaches, I I have my hand on the yoke. Uh, just in case the autopilot like gives up, yeah, I want to have my hands there on the controls. I'm following through with what the autopilot's doing. But in, in normal flight, like in in your climb and cruise and and descent, you, nobody has their hands on the control yoke unless they're using the microphone button to talk on the radio. Uh, but I have a suggestion though for uh, if it is difficult to reach around and uh, use the microphone button on the interphone panel, why don't you just take the hand mic? <laughs> Use the hand mic. That way, you're not bothering anybody, and it's not you're not reaching very very far. You're just now maybe that's somebody like me who has had many many years and thousands and thousands of hours of flying airplanes that that was the standard way of communicating using the hand hand microphone. So maybe I, it's I just have one question: How do you do your coupled approach? Uh, I, what do you mean? I, I click off the autopilot and the auto throttles, and I have the first officer put his hand on my hand, and that's what we call the couple approach. Oh, well, <laughs> <laughs> that's nice. Yeah, no, I don't do that at all. I'm only kidding. Yeah, I know you are. <laughs> I, I have a serious question, though. Um, do you follow each other through when you're flying an approach? Do you, Does the first officer follow through the captain no. when it's a leg and vice versa? No, no. It's, vice, it's vice versa on the captain. Uh, with a annex, this is my experience only, and I've only been a captain a little over a year now. But if I have an FO that I have very good confidence in, then I'm my hands at the ready, my feet are at the ready, take the airplane if I need to. But I don't follow them through unless it's a new FO, brand new, off OE, and not flying the airplane very well. Um, Me, as somebody who's been a captain for quite a number of years. I never have my hands on the controls when it's the first officer's leg. And, um, you know, I assume that he's been trained to the standards necessary to do what he needs to do to fly an airplane. Even if he's brand new right off of IOE, I don't put my hands on the controls. So but that's just me. And probably because of my level of experience and, you know, being and, a captain. And, and, and being that said, Jeff, I don't actually put my hands on the controls. Mm -hmm. My hands are kind of like around the controls. You see, okay. so I'm not actually holding on or grabbing on okay. the controls. I'm just, my hands are right, right there. Yeah. So that if I have to act really fast just to save the day, then, then I'm, I'm so ready. The reason I asked the question was one of the, um, arguments against having, uh, side sticks, uh, that aren't coupled is that, uh, you can't follow through, uh, on a pilot. Uh, who's moving the controls because you, you don't have a feeling for what he's doing with the controls mm -hmm. because it, the side sticks aren't coupled and don't move. If you're not going to follow through on an approach by putting your hand on the yoke, then what's the difference? 
That's a good point because in a conventionally controlled uh, configured airplane, you don't have to have your hands on the controls to see what he's doing with the controls because your controls are, are doing the same thing, but it's in clear view. And they're this big giant thing right in front of you. Uh, sides to control, even if they were moving, I, I see your point, even if they were coupled. And so if he moved to the left, you could see the stick deflection of the left. It's so far out of your field of view that you probably wouldn't notice it anyway. No, you wouldn't. But you, generally speaking, on the approach, you're looking out the window anyway. It's right. all happening in but the in, lab. But in, in our world of conventional controls, we're looking out the window or we're looking at our instrumentation, but it's it, you cannot miss, even in your peripheral vision, what the yoke is doing. Whether, okay. the, whether the autopilot is flying the airplane or whether the other pilot is flying the airplane, it is very obvious what is happening with the controls. Okay. Yeah. And I would think that would make for very interesting OE, if operation experience, because if the OE, OE captain doesn't know what the other pilot is doing, it's, you know, it, via the yoke, it kind of, you know, you kind of don't have a feel. You can mm -hmm. see what's going on, but you don't have the true feel. As to what's going well, on, I would say it's pretty obvious. But you'd have to ask a trainer because yeah, I don't know. Training, just an observation. Yeah, good, uh, good questions, good uh, commentary, good observations. Uh, great questions from Marcus and Magnus. And now let's see. Do you want to? Uh, yeah, let's do this. This is an interesting question. This is from Dave. He said, love your podcast. I spend way too much time listening. I may soon be addicted. And of course, he's talking about the APG syndrome, which everybody or a lot of people are aware of. Not everybody suffers from it, but many people are aware of it. APG syndrome. APG syndrome and it's our fervent hope that none of you will be affected there there we're working on the cure but uh, we still haven't got it quite right yet um so Dave asks I saw this article about the potential for bad actors to hack the ILS signals and they give us a gives us a link to textexplorer.com uh, and was wondering what tools or procedures pilots have to verify that the signals received are valid. There isn't anything in the ILS radio signals that I know of, but can you, uh, your other instruments, altimeters, DME, VOR, rate of climb, etc., be combined as a check? Perhaps rate of change of the glide slope slash heading instructions, etc. Do you think the local ATC would, could install a fixed receiver to verify that the radio signals are at least correct at a known location and broadcast warnings if not? Does that sort of thing exist yet? Finally, do you think these concerns will accelerate the incorporation of GPS-based landing systems? I've never piloted anything beyond cars and sailboats. However, my father was the head of navigation engineering at United Airlines during the 70s and 80s and was one of several people uh, instrumental in creating an improved ILS system, then known as MLS, the micro Microwave Landing System. It was superseded by GPS just after being installed in a few locations, however. He was also a big proponent of converting avionics from analog to digital implementations and was involved with laser gyro evaluation and acceptance, among other things. This was all mostly before deregulation when the large carriers had big engineering departments. 
I am also an electrical engineer, but I did satellites and lasers, not avionics. And this is from Dave Ellison in Palo Alto, California. Very beautiful place. And the uh, link that he sent us was from, as I said, Tech, Tech Explorer, when an aircraft landing system is made to enter the spoofing zone. And it talks about the ability, and there's a video here that shows the people doing it and proof of concept and that kind of thing, where they can actually spoof an ILS system. And honestly, Dave, um, I can't see this being a big problem because when we are using, and, and most of the time we're flying into these big airports around the world, it is via the instrument landing system. But we also are using moving map displays and we're looking at the projected flight path of our ground or their global positioning satellite system presentation. And if what we're seeing on our instrument landing system is not jiving with what we're looking at on our moving map display and our GPS derived track and vertical path, that would be like immediately, well, something's wrong here. Why are these two things not synced up? And so I can't see So if somebody spoofed an ILS and, you know, adjusted it so that the glide path, for instance, was going to be uh, much further out, you know, start, you know, much further out than it normally would. Uh, I think that using the uh, backup of the vertical display of your path, using your uh, RNAV system, GPS, that, that sort of thing would, would indicate to you or should that something is wrong with that glide. And there is such a thing as, um, just naturally without being a, a hacked system, there are things called, uh, what do they call it? Fa- false glide paths, uh, or fake, um, I can't remember. Yeah. The exact. Yeah. A false. You're right. The first time it's just a, a, a lobe of the, uh, transmitted signal that uh, is much weaker but can be picked up by the ILS system uh, and it's usually at, um, at a multiple of uh, the angle of the glide path. Uh, and what, it's usually on the glide path. And one it? of the safeguards of, uh, is that on our instrument approach plates, our uh, ILS system approach plates, there is something called the glide slope check altitude. It usually coincides with the glide slope intercept altitude. Not always, but usually it's that exact same altitude or very close to it that when you're passing a fixed point on the ground, like the final approach fix, when you're on the glide slope and you see that number and it jives with what the number is supposed to be on your approach plate, you know that the glide slope that you're on is the real glide slope, not one of those false glide slopes. Yeah, that's exactly right, uh, Jeff. Uh, Although that's been de-emphasized on our company uh, recently, we're still required to do the check. We no longer call it anymore, which I think is a... Oh, you know, uh, we've never called it. Uh, I believe it. Uh, we always I'm, used to call it. When uh, I'm doing the briefing, I mention it, uh, but I never, you know, we never say anything when we're actually doing the procedure. Right. Um, occasionally, I might, I might say something like, you know, good glide slope check or something like that, but not normally. No, we used to have a formal call of uh, final fix, and the other guy would come back with the correct altitude, no. and you'd both check it. That's smart. Uh, but th- that's been taken out of our SOPs now, so it's not smart anymore. <laughs> oh, shoot. Why? Anyway. You wonder why uh, they do that, that kind of because thing. Because we went to... Airbus SOPs. Oh, uh, it I used see. to be a company thing, not gotcha. an Airbus thing. Okay. Uh, but yeah, there, there are lots of cross checks we continue to do, and we're always keeping an eye on our um, both our angle of approach on the Airbus, which is easy to monitor, and our rate of descent. Because uh, and what's more, the aircraft will keep an eye on that as well. 
And, uh, you know, you'll get terrain warnings uh, from uh, GPWS and from EGWPS if you start getting wildly out. So there are plenty of protections in there to prevent this being a major problem. I agree. I don't think it's a big problem at all. Um, I just can't see somebody being so stupid and not using these cross checks and not looking at your, at your moving map display and noticing that it's not jiving with what the ILS is supposed to be doing. Uh, I, I can't see unless you're just completely out of it, uh, that you wouldn't notice that your system is being hacked. Exactly. It's a good question though. And I think that uh, maybe the people that wrote the article are not pilots and are just engineers. I don't know. Yeah. Or just hackers. Or hackers, yeah. <laughs> hey, are we at the uh, about the three-hour point? I think if you have that I think feeling, we are. I think we've okay. come past. Yeah. Okay. Well, then, yep. Oh, I just saw the note from Liz. Yes, we're at the three-hour mark. Okay. Well, unfortunately, um, that means that we're not going to be able to cover several of these wonderful pieces of feedback in our feedback folder. But you know what that means. It's going to get transferred to the next show's. Uh, feedback. And uh, if you want to send feedback yourself, you can do that by sending us email at feedback at airlinepilotguy.com. It can be text feedback. It can be uh, audio feedback that you record with your iPhone or Android phone voice recorder app or however you want to record audio and attach it to the to the feedback. Or you can use uh, SpeakPipe. All that is available by heading over to the airlinepilotguy.com slash website where you'll find that and information about the crew and the community and uh, merchandise APG store. We have APG live. We have the APG library. Our uh, librarian Tiffany manages that great, great uh, reads there. Uh, we have plane tales. It's very own page on the airline pilot guys show. It's a separate podcast feed as well. And uh, the APG calendar. Uh, there's more than that actually, but uh, that's the, the good stuff on there and uh, we're also on the app store for ios and android google play that is and for your android and ios based um, devices and we're also on the social meds are we where's yeah. steph steph's not here so <laughs> you're gonna have to take over uh, right we're on facebook uh, where you can find us at uh, ap uh, airline pilot guy and uh, we're on twitter uh, which is at uh, APG Crew, and the same applies on uh, Instagram. Yeah. So basically, uh, any of the social medias, uh, just put in Airline Pilot Guy or APG Crew, and you'll find us. And uh, we're also on Slack. You can you can become an APG Slacker if you'd like uh, by listening to what Hillel is going to tell us. APG listeners, please join us on our Slack team. Slack is a communication, coordination, and sharing platform that works on your mobile, laptop, or browser. On Slack, we share ideas and news. We suggest episode and plain tales topics. We plan events and meetups. To get into the Slack team, please email me at slack at airlinepilotguy.com. That's S-L-A-C-K, Sierra, Lima, Alpha, Charlie, Pilo, at airlinepilotguy.com. Or send me a tweet with your preferred email address to at Hillel, and I'll send you an invitation. That's Hillel, spelled H-I-1-1-E-1. Hotel India, 1-1, Echo 1. And see you in Slack. Thanks, Hillel. And also a big uh, thank you to our producer, Liz Piper, in Toronto. 
Big applause goes to uh, Liz's uh, help and assisting us with all the uh, things that go beyond uh, go on behind the scenes here at the APG. Thank you, Liz, for that. Couldn't do it without you. And finally, thank you for downloading and reviewing and all that jazz. Until next time, wishing you all clear skies, unlimited visibility, and tailwinds. Take care and God bless. Goodbye, everybody. See you next time. Good day.